Hey friends, welcome to 21st Century Saints Live, our podcast and live stream series for members and those who are affiliated with, adjacent to, or have an interest in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints here in the United Kingdom and around the world. I'm your host, Jean Christie. This is... Alana. That was like, well done. Alana Wilson-Brice, what's today's date? Do we know? 25th of May, 2022. In the chat, we also have our amazing angel monitor and moderator assistant for tonight, an incredible support. Sarah Elizabeth is in the chat. If you guys have um, the need of any support, direction, resources, um, Sarah, Sarah Elizabeth is wonderful um, at, at keeping the chat going. Um, and monitored. Now, if we do have any audio problems tonight, as you can see, we're having a party at Alana's house. Hi, I've had it enough. All the problems we're having this evening. Will, will, we do, will we start off with group therapy? Yes. Let's start off with group therapy. Tell me about... So, first of all, Alana does have her allergies back again, so and I don't have the ability to mute myself because it's Jane's audio, so... I may well deafen you all with my cough. Uh, and yes, my, there's some rats having a party in my house this evening. Um, the council came out tonight to patch up the holes out the back step. They plastered over a hole and the blooming rats have burrowed through the wet plaster and have managed to access my home again. So I can hear them right now and I'm freaking out. So if you see me pulling faces, that's why. <laughs> and... Yeah, and, and we are having constant power outages in, in our home. So yeah, thank you for thank you for letting me yep. in, invade as well as the rest of the as well as the rest of the little visitors that you've got. You ever seen Ratatouille? Oh, I don't know. oh we're gonna have I've to I've heard of it, but I don't know if I've watched it. Yeah, it might be therapeutic at this point. Mm. It it will either send you over or I don't think they'd send me any more over the than <laughs> already am, to be fair. <laughs> So yeah, so this week is crazy, and so we're trying to squish in to the one uh, webcam. We're sharing the same microphone, and it's we've always said with us you get a nice dose of real life, and so we have that again tonight, of course. Um, yeah, you good? I'm just not liking my clothes horse in the background. Can <laughs> I move it? We're doing the laundry as we podcast. This is how to, this real is life, how to rock life. the 21st century. Um, okay, we tonight's episode, I, I think it's one of the ones that when we first started podcasting, we were like thinking about who and who would we really like to speak to? Which conversations would we really like to have? And this one was right up there yeah oh yeah yeah you've been on our list since we first started podcasting so alana has what i would describe as a love-hate relationship with with this guest um <laughs> she has she she has um told him on many occasions what she really thinks of him which most of the time is a deep resounding love but is all i think i mean how do you know you've changed his nappy yes yes Changes nappy. He he has also bossed you around a stage. Um, he also claims allegedly that I threw a knife at him when he was a child. Yes, uh huh. <laughs> allegedly. So, 
we really want to uh, thank our wonderful guest, Benjamin Hunter, for agreeing to come on and talk with us. We're going to get Ben to say hi, but if you think you may, you may be a little bit familiar with Ben's face, Ben has the most incredible Mormon bio, especially for someone who is like we I have a son the same age as Ben um he's he's young and he's done so many incredible things and I've got to sort of sit from the sidelines and watch and be his supporter and watch how his journey has played out so Ben has sang solo and mm -hmm. general conference um features in LDS living as one of the top 10 conference moments of all time uh, Ben has starred in the British and Novu pageants, um, has been part of writing, directing, has an incredible career, is a very talented singer and has just an amazing story to tell. So Ben, do you want to say hey and introduce yourself to our audience? Hello everyone, thank you for having me on. Um, to the point of my Aunt Alana's knife throwing skills, uh, I, I will say that there are those who can corroborate the story, so perhaps they can be lined up for uh, guests in the future that may be able to back me up. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, uh, happy to be on here, happy to share my story. Um, I just hope that this evening I can um, allow someone to be, uh, how would you say that, um, reassured that no matter what their journey looks like, it's 100% okay and right for them. And uh, there's no dictators in our own uh, personal journeys, whether that's with faith, uh, in our careers, uh, or elsewhere in our lives. Uh, there are no dictators in their own journeys. And uh, and it's just fine no matter where you are. So that's what I'm hoping to share tonight through my crazy story. Um, yeah, that, that's what I'm, I'm hoping to do. It is crazy. First question, do you have a favourite... Um aunt or uncle if you had to pick <laughs> well i told you we'd be asking hard questions tonight <laughs> i don't think we'd open with them i'm um, going to put you straight on the spot if you had to pick i i i jobs. <laughs> your aunt laura says me obs i choose my I choose my favourites based on my own personal needs on a day-to-day -day basis i love that Yes, after something, something, then that person will be my favourite. Yeah, what? So, so Laura Fletcher in the chat is Ben's aunt, and obviously we have Ben's other aunt today. And so, the main question for you two to think on tonight is, what have you done for Ben lately? Um, <laughs> yeah, so just a game we're looking for. Um, let's let's just jump right in. Um, Ben, I first met you when now you would have been about eleven years old, I think. Um. So my oldest, Kyle, converted just around about the same time as, as you guys were sort of had made your way into young men. So it's round about the same time. Um, and I just see this glowing, constantly smiling young boy who is so polite. Tell me what, if, if you had been honestly speaking about your experience of church and, and life up until that point, tell me about you as a kid. Well, up until up until eleven years old, it uh, had a very very good childhood, uh, very uh, untraumatic life uh, so far. Uh, you know, up to that point, 
didn't want for anything. Um, yeah, a, a, a really good life up until then. In terms of church, it was just your standard up through primary. Although I did, uh, my baptism was delayed through personal choice, which is interesting nowadays to reflect on. <laughs> uh, I believe it was through personal choice. My mum can probably correct me on that. Um, but a, a very normal um, kind of Scotland-centric LDS upbringing through primary with the same recycled leaders, you know, good familiarity with those in the ward, becoming very um, akin to the fact that we're a fa although we're a ward, we're a family. We oh. see we see the same people outside of church as we do inside church, and those people becoming close associates uh, on on all accounts. So a very very normal um, upbringing uh, in the church, uh, a very very good childhood. Um, something about our family is uh, we have always been very very close <clears throat> we always spent a lot of time together we were always at grandma's once a week for what was called family day at the time um, and so yeah very good childhood very healthy upbringing um, great family to, to grow up in. which now I'm assuming that um, as Kyle comes into the church as I return to activity in the church that everybody's having the same Mormon experience and I don't think I really I mean I say this all the time we, we mention it because it comes up so often increasingly often how you've actually had a completely different um not even necessarily set of values but you have a completely different programming you know you, you've been trained to think in certain ways um so for example um, you're learning from primary age how to interact with your own body, that your body is sacred and things like that. Um, that this would have been completely new. That there, so I guess what I'm asking is, were you aware of any sort of shame-based teachings up until the point before you arrive in youth? No, I don't think so. I think it was very much what I thought was normal. Uh, and probably to a certain extent, it was very much what I thought everyone uh, believed in and are outside of the church yes. um, but I would say to a certain extent there was an element even at the age of maybe 10 or 11 of um, this perhaps uh, supremacy is a, is a strong word for, for a child that age but this feeling of uh, in, in school in particular of oh well uh, we're members of the church and there are other people in this school who are members of the church and we know better uh, than everyone around us <laughs> um, because you are taught that not verbatim but you're that, that's instilled in you from a young age right that, that this is the one true church on the earth that all others are wrong um, and you're taught as well that uh, you know ultimately in order to to be the best person that you can be and to be the best human that you can be and the best child of God that you can be then the place to be is the Mormon church because that's where you learn to be exactly that. So in as much as I didn't feel the, I didn't consciously consider every day, I wouldn't say so as a, as a young child, that there was a difference between me and others. Um, you know, I just kind of thought everyone was held to the same moral standards to a certain extent. And perhaps if we're looking at time periods and generations, there may have been what we considered higher moral standards back in those days or things that were fundamentally good and fundamentally wrong. But I certainly had that instilled in me that perhaps I did know better. But it wasn't 
it wasn't a thing, you know, it wasn't at the forefront. Yeah. But it's there. I I mean, I can see it looking in as as an adult convert that that yeah, you you kids were, and it's not framed as a bad thing. But I mean, when when you're taught what you're going to be and where you're going to go, when you're taught that you're preparing to receive the power of God, that is a heady mixture. Mm -hmm. Um, in school, are you are you the good kid? Do oh, you yeah. have any rebelliousness at all? Not, not in primary school, not at all. <laughs> I was okay. a good kid. Not in primary school, okay. Definitely the good kid, definitely the good kid. And uh, certainly, uh, I think I did pride myself on being the good kid as well, knowing that yeah. my teachers liked me, knowing that Mrs McGill, my head teacher, liked me and was very fond of her family in general. So, yeah, definitely the golden child. Well, one of the questions that um, I find really fascinating about Mormonism in Scotland, one of the one of the questions I have for you is kind of relating to that. Um, I can see coming in that there is this very strong church family in our ward um, with active parents, active children, and plans to go on missions, that kind of thing. Um, and the, you know, you, you talk about family day. For your whole family, which is multi-generational now, um, you guys are, are all living the dream. You guys are, are the Mormon, the Mormon dream. And there, I, th I mean, I think in, in our world, we're talking about maybe a couple of families, you maybe a possibly a, another one or two. Um, other wards and stakes throughout Scotland reflect the same thing. You've got some well-established multi-generational families. And there is a, I think there is a, a real difference there um, because you guys are looked at, one as a great example, the two as the great hope and expectation of the future of the church. What is it like to live in that though? Do you feel any pressure to be good or is it just, uh, how does that evolve as you go into youth? Well, in my experience, um, although... You know, I wasn't aware at the time of exactly what was going on and this dynamic of wanting to be the crown jewel family of the stake or the ward, uh, being the kind of poster family, um, the front cover of the enzyme kind of family. You know, you're not aware that, that, that of the, the principles and the basis of that, um, but you are aware that there's an element of people looking to you and compliments from people in the ward about, oh, you're such a strong family and... You know, they say there's strength in numbers and there was nine of us eventually. And so such a strong family, you're the hope of the ward, you're the hope of the stake, you're the hope of the church in Scotland. In fact, I even remember discussions about the fact that there was a time where people were asked to, to emigrate by church leaders, supposedly, to uh, America to gather with the saints. But then there was talk in my time of, but now we need to build Zion, you know, where we stand. And, uh, and it's families like yours that are going to be the hope and the strength of Israel. Uh, and so you're very aware of it. And children tend to conform for the most part, I would say anyway. Yeah. Um, and so you conform to the fact that you're always trying to get one up on uh, <laughs> these, these other families within that dynamic. Or at least uh, if you're not trying to get one up on you uh, or, or, or on other people, you certainly just feel, well, 
yeah, look at us, we are a great family. Mum and dad organise all these amazing activities all the time. They basically are the, the social conveners of this uh, Mormon social club. And, uh, you know, we're always involved and in, well, we play instruments just like those Mormon families you see on TV and read about. And, you know, we, you know, so, so you're, you're conscious of it as a child and you, you conform to it and you play into it. I would say that the turning point is when you come to youth and you begin to mature and you begin to have emotions and you're developing a sense of emotional intelligence that you begin to struggle with that dynamic and struggle with the pressure to live up to it um, and to live up to the expectations that people have of you being the hope of Israel. And I think that that's really the key for me because obviously we are going to talk about the kinds of expectations that come in Mormon families that have been, you know, from from the from, you're born into the church, you're 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 there from the cradle. Um, but I think in in wards and stakes, countries like ours, you've not only got that expectation from your family, but you've got it dialed up to eleven from the whole of the rest of your ward. So literally, we would be in classes where um, you know, people would be looking to your parents and other parents and saying you are a really good example of this could you maybe talk about you know your your son has went on a mission how did you do it um because you are one of the very very few who did take us into youth then tell me um you've you've had a whole life of church youth becomes a little bit different who who was your favourite youth leader in your wards? That one is easy, to be fair. That one is easy because I did have a lot of nut jobs as youth leaders. And so, uh, Jamie, yeah. you're included in that category. <laughs> no, at 100%, it would have been you. Um, you were the hope of Israel at that time, <laughs> in my eyes. <laughs> um. Yeah, no, I mean, I could take you into the journey of why am I your favourite, but, you know, we, we can do that any other time. Um, we'll do that. We'll do that when I need a favour from you. Oh, yeah, let's do, yeah, whenever I need to be there. What have you done for me lately? How, no. how good is that again? Tell me. Exactly. <laughs> um, no, but seriously, we are going to talk about some of that, um, I, you know, because the time I got to spend in youth, you are you are strong as you're doing great. My kid leaves. It was doing his head in, um, you know. So it, there was, I got to see some of the complexity that you guys were experiencing, and how the answers that are in the manual, because it's already spelled out. Not just you know here are potential questions. Here is the question. The question. Here are the answers. Um, they just weren't cutting it for a lot of people and it was being internalised by a lot of youth as a shame. And then you can see this reflected in the adults. It's just playing out in a uniquely Mormon way for you and for your siblings. And yeah, for, for, for other kids too, I guess. Um, but since you're not in the scope of this inquiry, let us let us continue. Tell me about youth. What are what some of the things you're discovering about the church? Well, I think as a you know as a, a young uh, teenager at the time, you begin to become aware um, of the world. You begin begin to become aware of uh, people in your life that you want to emulate. You begin to really really look up to people and try to 
mimic what they do or try to be like them. And so I think in my early days of youth, I lived for Jeffrey R. Holland at General Conference, giving his banging the pulpit talks. Yes, I wanted, awesome. to, wanted to be like Jeffrey R. Holland. I wanted to be as spiritual as him. I would even say that some of you know my uh, the older young men at the time that were preparing for missions that would perhaps um, lead activities or lead spiritual thoughts. You wanted to be like them. To to me personally, there was there was this conscientious striving to be spiritual, to be the spiritual giant, to be a leader. And I think that's who I am naturally as well as a person away from faith, uh, a natural leader, and but, but also still following others' examples, still always trying to learn. And so I think there was an element of, in the early days of youth, of very, 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 very quickly uh, maturing spiritually. I suppose is what you would say, in maturing in terms of knowledge of the gospel. Uh, I have always loved research. I've always loved learning. Probably get that from my, my dad, who's a historian. So I loved soaking up information. I loved learning as much as I could. I couldn't wait to start seminary because to me that was the penultimate experience of uh doctrinal gathering and, and learning uh, about the gospel, I started to be so fascinated by uh, church history as it was told by the church at the time. And so it's this very, very quick uh, developing into now the poster uh, deacon, you know, this, mm. this, uh, this poster boy, um, you know, wanting to learn, wanting to, to grow, wanting to be those people that I was looking up to. Um, and I enjoyed it. I enjoyed learning. Uh, I, I think today the foundation of my faith and my the foundation of my Christianity, my belief in Christ, is remains the learning that I did then. Uh, learning about the atonement, discovering uh, the relationship that I could have with deity. Um, a lot of that remains a foundation of what I continue to believe in today. And so I enjoyed it. Um, but at the same time, as you are trying to grow, the leaders also want you to grow up as well. They want to start preparing you for covenants, I suppose, because ultimately you're a young man and you're going to go on a mission and you need to make temple covenants. And so, uh, and you have the for, for the Strength of Youth manual, so you know that you're going to start learning about modesty, about chastity. You're going to delve into the word of wisdom a little more. You're going to delve into the rules, the structure the parameters, uh, the goalposts, as a Mormon message once put it, um, you're going to start learning about that. And there's more responsibility on you to be worthy. You now hold the priesthood. Um, and you will only have access to priesthood power if you are worthy. Mm -hmm. um, and you have priesthood responsibilities. As a 12-year-old as a boy, you need to make sure you're worthy so that you can pass a sacrament to members in the ward. Now, of course, there's always going to be other people that can do it. But, you know, if you don't sit at the sacrament table that Sunday morning in a small ward in Scotland, everyone is very aware that something is amiss. And so in as much as there's this wonderful experience of learning and discovery, both in life and in faith, you become very aware of the pressure on you to be a worthy priesthood holder or a worthy temple recommend holder and when you're that age <clears throat> you 
you know, the, the, the questions of your relationship to Christ and your belief in the restoration and your belief in the church are not quite as paramount in your mind as your following of the rules. As a teenager, you feel that the, the main thing you're supposed to do to be a worthy member of the Mormon church is the rules. And the rules become the thing and the rules become the crux, at least in my experience. Yeah. Uh, and that that's what you're focused on as a teenager because naturally you want to be rebellious and discover and be curious and explore and give in to your natural uh, inclinations. You know, and I don't just mean on a on a sexual level, I just mean in a, a <coughs> old teenager self-discovery, you know, level. Um, but at the same time, you've been told now you have all these rules, you've got this whole pamphlet you need to follow, and that becomes a thing, that becomes a focus. You you measure your self-worth based on your ability to resist temptation, for want of a better phrase. Yeah. And that, that becomes a, a huge part of teenagers' lives in the Mormon church, I would feel. You know, having that coming from parents, um, leaders, coming over the pulpit at a local level and at a national level i mean i'm i'm sure that she wouldn't mind me me relating <clears> this but you know i also think about the pressure from you know even even like siblings i remember um one of your sisters had been talking about how um you know one week dating how um it would be really rude to say no if someone asked you out on a date and i remember being like what what do you mean it would be rude? You you would go on a date with someone because you're worried about manners? And she was like, yeah, it was just so normal. And uh, talking about, you know, a, a stake leader who was explaining to you. Now, this was before, before I came back to church, but a, a leader who's explaining to you all, um, thanking the young women for dressing modestly around their sons. And as this has been relayed back to me from young women who are like, you know, that's that's so wonderful that that was shared with us and it reminds us of this responsibility. I'm sort of coming in to see that kind of unhealthiness that as a leader, if I, if I contradict, um, you know, that, that would be your parents would have had a massive problem. Our bishop would have had a massive problem. It would have been grossly unfair to you guys. And so on a certain level, I guess, you have to either assimilate that and sort of, well, you know, that is what we're going to teach and reinforce, or you just shut up about it. So I think there's a, a lot of disservice done to youth when we can't just be straight up honest about being human, about, yeah, so these rules um they're not always healthy did you have any expression for um would you have even noticed any unhealthiness around the for the strength of youth or <laughs> young men's personal progress no at, at the time uh oh what was that called young men the duty to god god mm -hmm. oh my um at the time i still believed i was doing good and i firmly believed that um that in trying to follow those rules that I was doing the right thing. So um, I would say I wasn't aware, you know, I maybe only started to consider the uh, unhealthiness and, and, and allow me to only speak to the how some of those rules are taught rather than what is taught. 
in the con in this context is that how they were taught was extremely unhealthy and extremely traumatic uh, for me and for others i'm aware um but at the time you conform just as you did as a leader you know you were you were aware of it but you conform or you push down and, and you're quiet about it um, but at the time i still believed that it was the right thing to do and ultimately i just didn't want to be the reason that my family wouldn't receive eternal happiness mm. um, because of my own choices yeah i find that interesting like just when you're talking about that because um you know it's um I didn't realise how awful the first strength of youth was until I was an adult and it was Jane who pointed it out to me because I think when you're growing up in that environment, why would you see a problem with it? You know, like you always say that, you know, like you didn't have the necessarily experience we did of growing up within the church. So we are taught it from such a young age that when, like we talk about, we're not thought to think for ourselves, you know, we, we don't, we just take everything as gospel and as word. So... I had no reason to question how awful for strength of youth was telling the girls that how they dress affects boys. And it took, I mean, how, how many years were you? I mean, it's not that long ago, really. I mean, maybe that, that I realised because Jane pointed out to me, I'm like, are you kidding me? It actually says that. Like hearing it as an adult, I was like, I'm horrified. And I was in youth at the time, but still didn't pick up on it until Jane. And that's what I'm saying. And that's that's for me how it works. It's just you're taught it from such a young age that it becomes normal to you. You have no reason to question. You know, you do have the, the odd people who are critical thinkers and do know how to think for themselves. I didn't personally grow up. So, you know, I do find that quite interesting, you know, that you just you don't see it what happens then in a family like yours and you're in youth and you have all the answers <laughs> what happens when a family member leaves the church or distances themselves here i am <laughs> yeah it's uh you know everyone's world crashes down and it's a terrible thing and you know uh, people are upset and people are crying and people are seeking counsel from their bishops and you know really as the end of the world and people are praying and people are fasting yeah, yeah, yeah. can i can i jump in to just ask so obviously people don't just leave the church in isolation and it's i'm, I'm just curious um and i hope it's okay to ask i know that you're fine with everything you know i can ask whatever yeah, i like I'm but are, so are, are we talking about praying and concern and tears simply because of leaving the church not issues surrounding leaving the church like you know mental health issues or i mean it's all linked but it's all linked and it's all yeah. considered but really the, the the main no matter the state of someone's mental health that may or may not have left the church i would suggest that in the majority of cases the main issue is that they have left the church I know in mum's experience that was the case, you know, because she always told me, you know, she she prays that her children will one day come back to the fold. And oh. again, it's because of that that guilt, I think, that comes as a parent to make you realise that. Sorry, I'm hoping everyone can hear me okay. Tell me if you need to come closer to the mic. Mm -hmm. um, you know, that guilt of where did I go wrong? I've spoken about this before. My mum often felt, you know, where did I go wrong? What could I have done differently? You know, they blame themselves. And they also then worry, as you said, said earlier, Ben, about you saying about being that one who's broken that eternal family because we teach that 
you'll not be together as a family. And 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 I find that so horrific now. And I know I'm, I'm sure if Laura still wants to want me to say, that's one of the things Laura really struggled with. Is are you telling me that because we've walked away from a church, that even though we're good people, we live a good life, we do good things in the world, that I'm not going to be with my family just because I don't follow a religion, you know? And obviously, I know that was such a big thing for my mum, and it was praying to come back to church. I'm not saying she didn't pray for us and our issues, but I think, like you say, Ben, that definitely seemed to be the main focus from people that I've spoken to, even myself having done it, yep. for people to come back. So any rebelliousness at all come in the teenage years? Definitely. I think it's very, very natural um, to rebel. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, did I just it all? Like, did I just not notice or were you just really low-level rebellious? Is this, is, is this like you, compared to other kids these days who are, um, you know, like coming home, brought home by the police and stuff like that, we're not talking that level. It That's wasn't it wasn't rebellion for rebellion's sake. It was I suppose rebellion maybe isn't the best word. It was just thing, isn't it? it was just it was just natural discovery. Um you know, as any teenager, um, you know, from a from a psychological viewpoint, they do. They develop and they grow and they they they, they, they discover. Um you know, they, you become curious when you're in high school and people start to drink or smoke. You become curious, um, not necessarily interested, but you become curious. And then, of course, when you start to learn about sex and it's so taboo when you're a teenager and um, you start to hear people speak about things and mention words in the context of sexuality that you've never heard before and naturally you're you're um turned on for want of a better phrase to those uh to, to that, that those kind of conversations and you 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 want to be involved you want to learn about it you're curious you're naturally discovering your sexuality as a teenager so how did you deal with shame around that because when as you discover it and experiment with it it doesn't just come as a positive experience on its own you're a Mormon kid. What about the shame? No, yeah, definitely. I remember. Um, so, I mean, I I couldn't put a, put an age on it um, or anything at all. But I um, remember when I was uh, probably around twelve or thirteen or so, um, and you're in high school and you hear people speak. And actually, um, I think actually at that point. Um, I had uh, there had been a class all on that topic, um, and so you you become aware, you become more knowledgeable. Um, you are wanting to be involved in the conversations that that are happening around that subject. You're what it's not just that you're wanting to be cool, but you just you also feel like well, this is obviously something I have to learn about, and this is obviously something that I have to be involved in because it's natural, it's inherent, um, and so. Uh, I can remember specifically an object lesson, which I know has been used a lot, actually, because we've got all of these, um, which I now look back on and just scoff at, these ridiculous object lessons and ridiculous, probably untrue stories that are constantly passed down, leader to leader to leader. Um, and so naturally, as a young teenager, um, I had discovered masturbation, and it was something that the majority of young men at least and certainly probably many young women were, were doing at the time and had discovered naturally it's natural and it's healthy 
and uh, in good science and good psychology and uh, good peer-reviewed studies support that and I support that uh, as well uh, and I remember uh, at that time realizing that this ought to be something I should be ashamed of this ought to be something I overcome at some point this uh, ought to be something I tell no one about that I keep a secret um, and so already you feel uh, deceitful you feel as though you don't have a real relationship of trust with your parents because you're keeping things from them. Now, make no mistake, people outside of the church, young teenagers experience that as well, that the relationship naturally changes with people around them um, when they start to do things behind parents' backs, etc. But remember, for a Mormon, on top of all of that, is that great big price hanging over your head of eternal happiness and wanting to make sure you get there with all your family and that your mum's not going to miss you there. Although I've since heard that people that are better than others can travel to other, you know, kingdoms or whatever, you know, so maybe that was the solution. But um, that aside, I remember keeping this in as a young teenager, um, feeling ashamed of it and always, always trying to overcome it and always, always trying to stop because that's what I was taught to do. It was evil, it was a sexual sin, it was very difficult, um, you know, sin to overcome. It's addictive. Um, you know, you really, really, we almost uh, dehumanise people um, when it comes to the law of chastity, I feel. And then there was an object lesson that was done by a young man leader at the time, um, who's still active in the ward, actually, um, where they had this fresh block of wood uh, and a long nail and a hammer. And the lesson was about chastity. I remember that. It was specifically about chastity and purity. Um, and I remember the object lesson was if you commit a sexual sin or an immoral sin, you know, to do with the law of chastity, it's like this nail and they hammer it right into the block of wood. You've committed a sin and there's this nail on you. <laughs> um, and then they say, but it's all right, don't worry. You can repent. There's always repentance, the power of the atonement, the redeeming power of Christ to overcome this sin. And they turn the hammer around and they remove the nail. And I remember, which let me just say this as this was personal doctrine. I, I do not believe that the church teaches us as doctrine. This was personal doctrine. But to me, it was the doctrine of the church at the time. But it, it, it became clear later with hindsight that this was a personal doctrine of this ill-equipped individual who was teaching youth. Repentance can remove the nail and they taught that unfortunately when it comes to this category of sin, sexual sin, in as much as the nail is removed, that blemish will always be there. Because whenever we meet our opposite sex that we're married to, marriages between a man and a woman, a woman and a man, you will be blemished and you won't be fully pure. And you wouldn't have, uh, it's just one thing that you can't fully ever go back on. Now, clearly that isn't what repentance generally is about and what the redeeming blood of Christ is all about, right? So it is personal doctrine, but it was taught. <laughs> and why was a leader who was responsible for young adults at such an important time of their life so ill-equipped to teach youth, impressionable, vulnerable youth, about this issue. Um, it's, 
it's irresponsible. It continues to be irresponsible. The church continues. And don't get me wrong, I believe they've made great progress. I have no interest in finding out what progress they've made. But I do believe, uh, I've been told that they've made progress in improving the way that people teach around these subjects. Um, but it's utterly irresponsible. It's utterly irresponsible. And, uh, and it has left me extremely traumatized, that specific object lesson, because I was doing what every other natural teenager was doing at the time. I was healthily discovering my sexuality. And I would rather have had a trusted adult be able to speak to me in a caring and compassionate but educative way on the subject. Um, and for someone to have just said to me um, that, uh, you know, this is natural, this is normal, uh, and and it's okay to do this. Uh, and then maybe they could have a, dis I mean, I'm not, I'm not an expert on the subject either, and I've got a long while to go before my daughter receives that, the sex talk. Um, and I'm sure I can get advice, uh, certainly not from uh, the church, but from, from <laughs> those who are responsible in the way that they educate young ones. But, but let me know, I mean, it does, it frustrates me and I get very passionate about it because I just think it's so irresponsible that someone would be allowed to, to teach impressionable, vulnerable people on that subject at such a young age and be so ill-equipped um, to do so. But from a personal point of view, it was very traumatising because it's once, you know, once you have started discovering your sexuality, including via masturbation, it's a very difficult thing to give up. Um, because we are human and it's human nature to continue to discover and to grow and to, to blossom in, in our sexuality. Um, and again, good science today and good psychology supports with evidence that, um, that there is a healthy way to discover sexuality and that's to follow your human instincts. And so it was very traumatic for me as a, as a teenager. I didn't realize that it was trauma at the time. I just knew that it was difficult and I was ashamed and I could never speak to anyone about it and never ever did until after my mission, by the way, never ever brought up this subject to anyone. Um, but it's something that I have felt really impact my mental health in the last few years and something that I have sought therapy for to try and overcome. And unfortunately, I think it's something that I'll still not be able to overcome is that Sunday in a classroom with who I would just describe as someone that may have been well-intentioned. I don't really care whether, whether they were or not. And perhaps the church was setting these leaders up for failure, but it was an irresponsible uh, situation. And uh, it was very, very frustrating in hindsight to see that that was allowed to happen uh, and that those lessons were allowed to be given. And by the way, as a side note, that lesson was also happened to be given in the one classroom in the Airdrie Ward building that had no windows. Uh, and, and at the time that meant nothing to me, but nowadays that also really concerns me. Um, and my message is for the most part on that subject is parents or guardians, uh, trusted and responsible parents or guardians who are fit to do so, make the calls in terms of how their children or those that they care for are educated on sexual education and it is not and must not be dictated by the opinions of others because at the end of the day when that young child 
is discovering their sexuality. You want them to be able to come to you who taught them how to discover sexuality healthily. You want them to trust you enough to come to you when they have concerns, whether that's concerns over abuse or whether that's concerns over physical dysfunctions in terms of sexual health or psychological dysfunctions in terms of health. There's no reason that another adult should be trusted to uh, be responsible over that conversation. I would say sex education at school is a different thing, but still parents need to make decisions over what their children are taught and how they're taught it. Um, and anyone that's watching, I, I would just urge them to, to be in control of what their children are being taught over that subject because it can impact someone for the rest of their life. And it can actually be an inhibitor to a young person being able to safeguard themselves against sexual abuse when they're young and when they become an adult. It's very important stuff and irresponsible adults shouldn't be trusted with it like that leader was. Oh, I can't hear you guys. Sorry, Alana. Um, the, I'm trying to remember because there was a few points points on there that, that I had thoughts on. So I'm just going back to you know you with the nail story. I obviously my memories are very restricted. I do feel like I remember being taught something that I've heard other people be taught about the chewed gum for the girls, you know. And and I find that you know I, I would be interested to see, you know, you're saying they've made progress, but I would be interested to see and hear from people if that is still being taught today. I would like to hope they've moved away from that, but knowing the church, it wouldn't surprise me that it is still being taught. Um, you know, you talked about, um, you know, being healthy in regards to that and the shame. And, and you know, I speak about this openly because, you know, Jane will understand that, again, like yourself, from a young age, I had that shame. I, I felt so horrible about myself that I was doing this, that, that, you know, again, and that's what I say, it falls into that trap of then you you learn how to lie from a young age because you know you're doing this, you're being asked if you're doing it, but you're saying no because you know if you say yes, the consequences of that. So you then learn to lie from a young age so it becomes this roll-on, knock-on effect. And, you know, even as an adult, you know, there's not many people, again, and I'm, I'm working on that because I often, we have conversations about this, Ben, how we say, we should as adults be able to talk about sex now within reason. You know, I'm not saying we have to get into intimate, gory details of what we do in our sex life, but years ago, I would have cringed having a conversation with my nephew about sex and, and the pleasures of it and different things. But I now realise that it is healthy to talk about these things because it's a natural part of life. You know, you're saying about the opinions of others. You know, we have experts like Natasha Helfer, shout out to her for all the amazing things she does to help people to learn that it is, you know, who speak out and say it's a healthy, normal part of life, but yet the church is so against it and causing pain in others, causing even people to self-harm, to even worse, take their lives because of the shame and guilt. And I'm thinking, how can the church not see the damage that's caused from what they teach in comparison to the experts. Now, people within the church are not experts on this matter. They're not. You know, we have experts who are speaking out on this and saying that we need to learn how to be inquisitive. You know, and even as an adult, I mean, I've had conversations with Jane where that shame and guilt is still with me. Even to this day, I don't want to put this image in people's mind, but, you know, we're talking about it, you know. Yeah. I still struggle to a certain degree with that shame and guilt 
when I'm still exploring. I feel so sheltered as an adult. I still don't know all of my body parts the way I should. Jane knows that because she'll, she'll talk about something. I'm like, what's that? What are you talking about? I'm a 40-year-old adult and I don't know my body as I should as an adult because it's such a shameful thing growing up within within a religion and, and it's awful. And I really do hope for the future that the church does change on that because it's normal and natural part of life. So one of the, the ways that Alana, I, I think actually this might have been the defining moment in our, in our first becoming really, really good friends. And I remember we were sitting in our ward building in the foyer with this enormous picture of Jesus behind us. And Alana was having real problems with migraines and it was just, we were just feeling really, really rubbish. And I'm, we're just sitting outside privately and, uh, and I said, have you tried masturbation? And in your face, genuine, you managed to keep it together so, so well. And, and I just thought, you know, unless someone, I think, has the confidence to start speaking and normalising these types of conversations. I mean, I remember you were you were in one of the classes um. I, I think I'd been teaching Sunday school for such a, a short amount of time. It wasn't a, a lengthy calling that I held. But, um, you know, I, I remember this. That This was the most requested subject was to talk about issues around chastity. And and I remember that, um, that just this, this real impression that somebody needs to know your story. Somebody needs to know. Because... It is, it's such a private thing. Everybody doesn't have the right to my life or my knowledge. It's nobody's business. Um, but, you know, and, and I, I do remember, you know, over the, I think it would be maybe a couple of months later, speaking with one of the youth in the class to talk about, yep, um, my my experience in, in porn use. I wouldn't use the terms. In fact, that's not true. I did use the term porn pornography addiction. I don't believe an addiction model should apply to pornography. I don't think it's the right model um, to address it, if it needs to be addressed at all, in fact. Um, the My bisexuality, just mentioning it in a casual conversation, and it, that moment changed everything. Um, I realised how much other people need for these conversations to be, to be part of normal discourse. And, okay, you don't go to church to maybe hear about um, how to appropriately use your body. We talk about bodies all the time in church. It's core to Mormon doctrine, having a body. And yet there's this huge element of having one that we are not, we just turn it to, how we, we efficiently turn it to shame is nothing short of magnificent. Um, I love what you said. Uh, I think limiting the atonement in any way is appalling and how dare we how dare we assume that we can do that i guess also the the other thing maybe i'd say about your comment um uh, often i think when we leave the teaching of um healthy sexuality to parents sometimes those parents are so uneducated themselves and uh you know we, we do we have lots of parents who would prefer to handle the subject themselves and it means that basically they don't or they don't realize when something age appropriate has just come around the corner that they weren't prepared for um what are your plans for how you're you're going to talk about it as Callie gets older 
thought yeah, maybe? Yeah, yeah, that's something that's uh, very personal to Alicia and I. It's something that we do discuss. Um, so I think the main thing is that Alicia and I, um, just based on uh, her own experiences and then based on uh, experiences of those in my family, our main thing for our daughter um, would be that we both want her to have a, an unfailing trust uh, in Alicia and I. We feel that she trusts us, if she fully trusts us and she feels that she can speak to us uh, guilt-free, shame-free, without fear of serious discipline or us flying off the handle or shaming her, that we can safely, um, that, we, that we can healthily safeguard her. Um, yes. Because we do need to, we need to protect the children. We need to, we need to safeguard young people when it comes to, to this uh, subject and when it comes to uh, sexual health. And, you know, so if, if, you know, heaven forbid anything was to ever happen to Callie, we would want her to come to us straight away. And I really do believe, and, and listen, I'm, I am not on this podcast to bash. I'm not here to, to bash the devil's pulpit. And, to, um, you know, I am just telling, sharing my experience. And in my experience, we have crafted a very dangerous and unsafe environment for victims of sexual abuse in the Mormon church. Victims of sexual abuse, whether that's child sexual abuse, adolescent sexual abuse, or adult sexual abuse, those individuals are unsafe in the majority of cases, if not all, in the Mormon church. They are not in the safest place they can be. And Absolutely. I want I want to do I want to undo all of the thinking processes. I want to undo all of the behaviors, all of the knee-jerk reactions that I have seen to to comments, confessions, or questions, uh, or a box of tampons sitting on a table and the horrified reaction of the priesthood holders in the house. All of that I want to undo because of my child is ever unsafe or is ever in a position that she may be unsafe, I want her to, without hesitation, come to me and to come to Alicia. Uh, and, you know, when she has her first, when she kisses her first boy or girl, we want we want to be the first to know, not anybody else. And we want to celebrate that moment with, with her. Um, and let, let's, let's, let's be realistic in as much as Aunt Alana will know how open I am about this topic, but... We still respect people's boundaries. Obviously, Aunt Alana has her boundaries. Jane, you didn't even want to see a picture of the bed in her honeymoon. honeymoon. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I didn't want to see a picture of your bed, Ben. Goodness. Um, yes. There are boundaries, and, and we need to respect one another's boundaries. Boundaries are extremely healthy, and we need to be respectful of what people... Um, are willing to discuss and what people are not willing to discuss. So I'm not, you know, I wouldn't describe myself as a, a, a you know, nudist hippie. And there's nothing wrong with being a nudist hippie. That's not what I would, you know, this sex obsessed, um, you know, the Miriam Margulies, you know, I'm not that. And there's nothing wrong with being that. I just want to celebrate 
the uh, the the body that we have been given, the body that has been created, G spots and all, <laughs> and and that's how I feel. And as well as that, more than anything, I want to be able to be in a position where Alicia and I can equally and 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 uh, collaboratively protect our daughter and any other children that we have that that we are able to safeguard her as as a team. Um, and as I say, based on my experiences, that's not instilled in parents and guardians in the church, no. sadly, and in the majority of cases. And the research of Sam Young and others in this community um, very, very clearly demonstrate that in a grassroots way. Ben, that is absolutely beautiful. And I, I just want to kind of honour how I see your approach um, working with people, work, how it's, you know, whenever you were that little kid in youth and I remember I was walking, uh, you guys, there was some kind of activity in our home and you guys were all hanging around and I'm drinking Bovril. Um, so it's a hot drink and it's basically a cup of gravy, guys. It's nasty <laughs> unless you, it's a Scottish a very drink. drink. It's, bloody delicious all right let's face it but anyway um and and you had just walked by you know saying oh you enjoying your coffee and it was so matter of fact and so non-judgmental and like you know like it's a lovely evening um that being said wait it's you know yeah that being said um i mean i don't know what age that was but i did probably become one of the most judgmental Scottish Mormons in well. years. And there's many people that can testify to that. Oh, man, I love you. I love that. Um, well, we're, we're going well, to Ben come... was all in. Like, I, yeah. mean, I used to be like, is he for real? Like, genuinely, because I've never been that, I don't even know how to compare it to him, but like, I TBM. was never that all pure TBM. When I was there, I, I gave my best. But I was never like to the extent that Ben was like he like genuinely because I used to think right Ben calm down son you know like because it was just so all in like it was you know all this knowledge all this you know and I just thought right pal right pal. <laughs> so for our viewers who haven't joined us before just just so that we can um, re-emphasize something Ben was saying for a bit of context um, we are not here to sit and criticize the church um we talked about families before and what happens as families are trying to understand why someone leaves um what happens as families try to make sense of what their eternity will look like as families are trying to unpack those dynamics um all of our wards all of our friends are leaving and Ben is one of those people. Alana's, you know, my whole family. Getting to that exactly. Um, and so we are having those conversations about what the hell is going on. What what are we? What is being missed at church? What are the things that if you turned up to church on a Sunday that you wish were being talked about, to the point where it's becoming a huge barrier, um, for people who are in church. What happens when you come to church and you can't find Christ there because you're finding all of this stuff? What happens when people who have loved the church for their whole mm -hmm. life decide that it is not right, have a faith deconstruction, reconstruction, whatever that looks like? And we're not having these conversations that we really need to be having about if this is your religion, 
you should know your stuff. Come on. We 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 are given manuals full of stuff every week. So we want to be having those conversations that yes are difficult. I am an active member. Alana has taken a step back. And so we we speak to that tension every every week. Um this is the this is the complexity that we live in. This is the complexity of life. So we wanted to to give that context. Also, when Ben is um Ben, when 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 we are speaking, especially when you know I'm having a spike in my OCD, one thing you always ask for is about boundaries. You you'll always ask, is it okay if I'm speaking about this, or is this going to potentially be triggering? And I really appreciate it. So I think if you're applying those kind of principles to painting. I just think you're setting yourself up for great success. Can I just really backtrack? Because I just remembered one other question that I had regarding all these chewed gum stories and Neil and the wood and stuff like that. Have they ever throughout the years actually been in a lesson manual? Does anyone know that? Has it ever been in a church lesson manual or is it just people's own ideas? I'd be interested to know that. I couldn't speak to that. Um, yeah, I, but I'm just asking generally, even to the audience, if anyone's aware, have those stories ever been in a youth manual to be taught to our youth, or is it just people's ideas? So if anyone has any proof of that, please send it over to me uh, so that I can have a nosy. Um, yeah, I would just be interested to know. Um, also, thank you for all the comments. Keep talking in the chat. Um, we're we're going to move on to our, our next sort of subject but um Sarah's there to signpost if anyone needs any help or support with the things that we've been discussing so far um because we're having a party at Alana's tonight I can't see the comments just as easy as I normally can so I might not be getting to pop them all up on the screen thank you keep commenting though we're really enjoying the chat okay I I guess we're still in, in youth time because there's something that I, I want to talk about, which is you're in youth and you have this really interesting drive. You, I think on some level, your family are very aware of having to be the people that fix everything or do everything in the world. If you guys aren't there, then it won't happen. And that is that's just, the, I'm saying that as someone who can very clearly see that. And you seem to just not get sick of it. You seem to just sort of accept it that that was, you guys, that was your role and your calling. And then you started talking about the Joseph Smith Nashville Tribune. Is it Nashville Trib Nashville Band attributed to Joseph Smith? Yeah. Yes. And you decided you wanted to put that on as a production in the ward. Talk to me a little bit about that, because that was my first experience of getting to work with you this little kid in youth who's got these big ideas um, and actually needed zero help whatsoever. You'd <laughs> asked for my support and I'm just like stepping back and letting you get on with it. What was that like for you? Uh, I, well, I would just, the, the Nashville trip, I, I'm a musician. I love music. I I worship today through music. That's how I practice my faith. Um, and it's always been a huge part of my life. And uh, hearing that music, it was a tribute to Joseph Smith and the restoration of the gospel, um, was uh, probably one of the first uh, te real testimony builders for me. It wasn't EFY, because EFY was a disaster, and I continue to despise it. <laughs> but um, uh, the, this this album of music, uh, Jason Deere, um, who wrote the music, is an incredible writer in country music and secular music, uh, but happens to be a member of the church, wrote this incredible album with a few other writers, it really formed my 
testimony at that age. I was a huge country music fan as well, and the music is country. Um, and so I just wanted other people to benefit from this uh, music. I wanted other people's testimonies to be built up from it. Um, and I wanted to drop on the talents of the board. And so we put on that production. We were able to teach the restoration um, and we were able to kind of try and build uh, people's testimonies of the restoration of the church um, and, and, and Joseph Smith, the prophet of the restoration. And I would say that was the beginning of a journey that took me to a place I could have never, ever, ever imagined in my wildest dreams. And that was certainly the, the beginning of my uh, musical uh, and performing career within the, the church. Um, but it is the first sort of, I don't know, big introduction to church history that you're having, the, the first immersive, um, because you were living, breathing that stuff for a really long time. Yes, uh, it was very, very, it was very basic. Um, mm -hmm. It was the kind of prominent stories and, uh, but yes, yeah, certainly would have been the, the first kind of delving into church history to a very, very small extent. And then we moved on to, uh, so what was the next one? It was uh, the Tribute to the Pioneers. Yeah, there was another album brought out, uh, the uh, Trek, so a tribute to okay. the Pioneers. And of course, they, their stories remain incredible and incredibly moving. Uh, heartbreaking story of refugees um people that were persecuted so really really tugged on the heartstrings still does um for what the, the people's people went through those early saints and what they sacrificed and so another great opportunity to to build people's testimonies via music okay this then the mormon dream is happening it is now time for you to get the old mission papers in talk to me about is 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 a mission is serving a mission and is it what you want i mean it's inevitably what's going to happen what kind of tensions do you have there so i did not want to serve a mission the age had been changed to 18 as i was getting closer to the time uh, i did not want to serve a mission at the time i was very in love with another girl i thought you know, maybe I'm like the Osmonds. They didn't have to serve missions. They were called to music. Maybe I'm just called to this girl. <laughs> um, maybe I don't have to serve a mission. And to be honest, I just really, really didn't like the idea of knocking doors all the time. A mission sounded really boring to me. Uh, I'm a, I was a bit of a home bird in certain ways. Um, and so, no, I didn't want to serve a mission. Um, so I, I delayed it to begin with. I delayed the preparation, didn't take any mission prep classes. Um, but then I got involved in the first ever pageant in the UK. Um, I auditioned for that because it was, a, again, a marrying of my love for musicianship and performing um, and uh, the church, you know, and, and faith and the doctrine of the church. So I got involved in the British pageant and... <clears throat> When I did the British pageant for the first year, I didn't realise it then, but I met some of the greatest people in my life and they remain the greatest people in my life. They were very, very influential on all accounts, but particularly uh, from a spiritual viewpoint, they were the ones that managed to help me come to the realisation that I should serve a mission. 
Um, so yeah, I did the I did the audition uh, for the British pageant. Did that here in the UK, and at the end of that, the uh, managing director of the priesthood department. It wasn't a four-hour audition. No, that's probably my accent, Paul. Um, mm -hmm. The managing director of the priesthood department, who came over to see the pageant, then asked me and another individual if we would be willing to move to America to work voluntarily from for the church. They would provide a stipend. Um, and to perform in a running production that's performed on Temple Square uh, every year called Saviour of the World, which is about the Saviour's birth and resurrection. So I was involved in that. I then ended up being involved in writing for the 100-year anniversary celebration that was held in the conference centre of the relationship, which has since been ended between the Boy Scouts of America and the Mormon Church. Um, I performed in that as well. It was broadcast across uh, the world. Um, I was still in Saviour of the World at the time. Uh, I had gone down to, to a Can Amphitheatre to perform there with people from uh, the, the uh, pageants um, involved in helping to write for uh, the youth uh, music that was coming out the following year. Ended up in uh, the music video for it as well. <laughs> recording that. Um, Ended up in the priesthood department, kind of an official choir, where we uh, would go and perform for leaders in the church. Uh, we would go into their rooms where they were having dinners. Uh, you know, be sang for Jeffrey R. Holland whilst he was sitting there uh, having a meal. Um, so this very very surreal experience where I went from a very localized Mormon experience in Scotland, <laughs> very very run of the mill. Uh, not not American at all experience in Scotland to be in right at the heart of it. Um, and is, is this the same time, is this <coughs> the same period of time where you are in the production with Jonathan Rhys-Davis? Mm. Uh, so that was also, the pro uh, yes, that was actually one of the other main projects that I was flown over to work on. So we, Okay, talk we, about that because that was bloody cool. That was... That, yeah, that's... <laughs> That's still a big highlight for me. Um, so David uh, Warner, who uh, at the time was the managing director of the priesthood department, he, for many, many years, I believe, had uh, the Mormon Tabernacle Choir uh, Christmas concert is a huge deal. They do it every year. It's broadcast the following year um, on PBS, and it is the most watched Christmas television special in the United States of America, not just within the church, but the whole nation. It's the most watched Christmas special on, on cable over there. And uh, David Warner, and, and, and all of those shows, there's always a kind of 20 minute dramatization that happens and there's always a story that shares the, the Christmas message. And that year it was a story about um, how Charles Dickens wrote A Christmas Carol. And uh, David Warner always wrote those, those 20 minute dramatizations. Um, and he was the one that was flying me over for Saviour of the World. And he was also wanting me to be involved because of my British accent, my British upbringing, and whatever he saw in me and believed in me to be involved in this Christmas concert. And they always have a guest star at the moment, Tabernacle Choir Christmas concert. And it was John Rhys Davis who plays Gimli in The Lord of the Rings that I performed alongside. And we, I had probably to this day one of the greatest experience of, experiences of my life. For a young Mormon boy who loved music, who loved the Mormon Tabernacle Choir, you know, musical flaws and all, <laughs> to be standing in the conference center with 22,000 people, having the, the, the 
Tabernacle Choir singing behind me, me performing on the stage with John Reese davis and those people that I mentioned who still are some of the most important people in my life. They were with me, performing with me, um, some of my best friends, and then the orchestra at Temple Square in front of me, and it all being live and just being where I never, ever, ever, ever thought I would be um, remains one of the most rich experiences uh, of my life. Just an incredible, incredible experience. So I was, I was, I was at the heart of it. <laughs> I was, uh, you know, I, um, you know, I was right in the middle of it, right there at church headquarters, involved in everything that I could be involved in, and just loving life. It's had the greatest time, um, and it was in that time that I had been uh, convinced that the mission was was the correct choice, and I was fully convinced of that at the time, um, and really, really wanted to serve a mission. I put in my mission papers. Just, no, I don't think I've ever asked you. You, you just snuck in there in your CV. You know that is badass enough to be performing on a stage live with the tab choir behind you. This amazing actor, but you're also performing private concerts for Jeffrey R. Holland and his ilk. I mean. That's got to be surreal. T tell me about that. Well, if you're on Temple Square, if you're working on Temple Square on a regular basis, you're going to bump into these guys, whether they're walking over to uh, their super mall for, <laughs> for food um, or whether they are um, walking through the, the, the tunnels. And by the way, the tunnels aren't anything magical like we believe over here in in, in Europe. There's nothing magical or mysterious about the tunnels under Temple Square. Tell people about the rumours. There are rumours that there's kind of secret rooms down there and that there's these secret tunnels and secret tunnels all the way up to the vault in the mountain. And In fact, I even heard a rumour that existed back in, I think, the 70s in the UK that there was a tunnel from the UK all the way to Utah where they would send women uh, to be married off to these American poster boy yeah, we do love an urban legend over here. But you actually got to see the tunnels. I was in the tunnels and they're only there for convenience and security for, for these prominent uh, and high up leaders in the church. And it wasn't full concerts that, and it honestly wasn't happening regularly. It was just the odd time the, the priesthood department choir would be singing in a, uh, in a meeting that Jeffrey R. Holland was conducting or um, the... Uh, I'm sure one time we performed after Saviour of the World for Dieter Fuchdorf and his family because he has a family tradition to take all of his family to see Saviour of the World every year. Um, so just singing a song or so, you know, whilst they're just trying to enjoy the dinner and we're there singing. You know, they were probably it's ordinary like, then. Like... We'll just thinking, go away and leave us alone. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it, but for, a, for a young Mormon boy, you know, you think you've made it and you think that, you know, and really you have in terms of... Uh, being at the heart of the church and being around the people that you look up to twice a year, well, all year, but, you know, you see them twice a year. It really was, you know, goodness me, how did this happen? Yeah, and, um, you know, as, as I've you know alluded to multiple times, you are, uh, your ward is, is experiencing your life vicariously through you. This is this is an Airdrie Ward person who's going yeah. to do all of this stuff, and we were part of his story and his you know his growing up, and it's it, it's so exciting for us to be able to watch that unfold. And so the mission 
yeah, you can see how it was inevitable. What happens next then? So I, uh, after I had spent some time in America, I had come home um, to Scotland. Uh, mm -hmm. I have a membership record. So for those of you that don't know, if you're going on a mission, you have to put in your mission papers from wherever your records are. Those private performances were either backstage at Saviour of the World or in conference rooms in the administration building, which is where the general authorities meet, or in meetings in the Joseph Smith Memorial mm -hmm. Building and chapels. It just depended where they happened to be. The general authorities are actually out and about more than more than you think. Um, so yeah, uh, yeah, so come back to Scotland, decided to put in uh, my mission papers, um, and then I received an assignment once my mission papers were in to go and perform in the Novi pageant, um, which was the following year after spending Christmas, uh, spending the Christmas season in America, which is everything I described there. Um, and so I put my mission papers in, headed over to Utah to begin what we call workshops in theatre terms, where you're kind of workshopping and developing uh, the pageant, which we did in the conference centre theatre. There's a small theatre next to so in the exact same building where general conference is held, there's a small theatre that seats 800 people where Saviour of the World is performed. And that's where we workshop the pageant before we head out to Nauvoo to perform over there. Um, and I received a call that my mission papers were ready and I could just pop across the street to get them. <laughs> and so all of the family are on Skype um, and uh, I'm opening my mission papers. Um, and I was called to the Belgium Netherlands mission. I had to report to the MTC in Provo um, by the 16th of September of that same year. So I finished the pageant in August, had a little bit of fun in America, headed back home, packed up, got ready and flew back over to Utah to go to the MTC to learn Dutch and how to be a missionary. And so the, the next thing, I'm, I'm just going to be totally selfish and just talk about my experience of your story because that's all that matters, right? <laughs> Obviously, jump in with any relevant stuff that's happened as part of that. But the next time we see you is when your parents have given us a heads up the conference, the priesthood session of this particular conference, this is the one to watch. This is going down. So I stay up with uh, with my son, who is a huge Ben fan. He, he was in youth with, um, with Ben and uh, was a huge fan of the prophet at the time, President Monson at the time. Um, and all of a sudden... We can hear, and you know, I am so sorry. I really did hope uh, that we would ha have a clip <laughs> of this ready to let you all relive this moment. But suddenly, Ben Hunter kicks off the, the choir solo. You're singing a solo in conference. And we're all thinking, this has this ever happened before? And no, you, you made history by doing that. So tell us a little bit about what the, how, how did this happen? Can I just jump in and say, I think that was one of the only times in a long time I ever watched conference. <laughs> and it was a priesthood session as well, yeah. Um, so that was, uh, I, I was just very, very fortunate. Um, someone that I really, really respect still to this day is a man called Ryan Eggett. Um, he, I, I want to get his job titles right, but I'm not going to, and I know that he's just changed jobs. <laughs> In fact, I think currently he's working on the new hymn book for the church. He's part of that team. 
Um, but at the time, anyway, he led the, he had a calling, it wasn't a job, to lead the MTC choirs. Um, and it was just luck that that year the Provo MTC were providing a priesthood choir for the priesthood session at General Conference. Um, the way that the bureaucratically the structure of the church works is that the majority of music, depending on the event and depending on the context, is managed. At the time, it was managed by uh, the priesthood department and music fell under that, so music and cultural arts department. And I had just spent three, four months working with them, uh, volunteering with them, performing in Saviour of the World and blah, 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 with the same people that to an extent were overseeing. So it was a lady called Sister Bastion, an incredible woman, and actually her daughter. After Sister Bastion retired, her daughter, who I'm good friends with, has now taken over and is doing an amazing job of managing the music in the church worldwide. Um, although they still don't have enough happy clappy songs as far as I'm concerned. Absolutely. What, <laughs> someone's um, asking that, Ben, what year was that? This was 2014. Uh, the October uh, priesthood session. And so I, I auditioned for the choir, um, got into the choir. Uh, there were a number of arrangements that we were learning. There was a new arrangement. Uh, there was uh, this arrangement of Ye Elders of Israel that was brought up. And Ryan Eggett, that was leading the choir, mentioned in a rehearsal that um, he, would, he just felt inspired, I suppose, to have a soloist perform the beginning of it. But it was so unprecedented and uh, maybe self-serving to that soloist, and it may be unfair, blah, 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 blah. So he wasn't sure if it was going to happen. Um, but what usually happens when a guest choir is performing at conferences, someone from Music and Cultural Arts will come out and see the choir and make sure that it's to a good standard and that the arrangements are going to work, the, the arrangements are approved, um, that it's sounding good, etc., etc. And that happened to be Sister Bastion, uh, who... I was familiar with um, and she suggested that I do it to Ryan Eggett um, and he asked me if I would do it and I said yes. Uh, I couldn't believe what I was hearing. Um, I also dealt with feeling like it was very unfair because there were a few other great singers <laughs> that were in the choir um, but I was asked to do it and I'm very 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 happy to do it and actually I, I don't, as far as I can remember, I don't think I told anyone apart from my sister Amber, exactly what was happening. Um, I think I just told people to make sure they watched that session because I would be singing in the choir and the cameramen at the conference centre know me, so they'll probably give me screen time, I think is what I said. <laughs> and so um, no one actually knew uh, that, it was, that it was happening. Um, and it was a really, really fantastic experience. It was very, very nerve-wracking. Um, but it felt great to do it. And at the time, again, it just, there, there probably was an, an element of arrogance and pride of, you know, I'm wonderful that I'm getting to do this. But but to me, it was a beautiful experience to hear the prophet at the time finish speaking and then to be able to, to sing uh, after he spoke. At the time, that was just a series of we we are trying to see if we can we can find the link to stick it down in the the comments just now and hopefully if we can manage to to catch it we'll be able to put it up on the screen um yeah if you keep talking then so you you kick off your mission with this big surreal experience 
your mission kind of continues to be a bit surreal, right? Uh, yes, I did not have the run-of-the-mill um, mission. Uh, definitely not. Um, I uh, obviously finished up at the MTC, um, flew out to Belgium and the Netherlands, uh, started my mission in a small little town called Hohen. And you're enjoying everything? Your experiences are spiritual and you're getting a lot out yeah. of them? Or are... No, I, I, I thoroughly enjoyed the MTC. Um, there were elements of it that I found really, really difficult. But I would say for the most part, I enjoyed the MTC. Um, I really enjoyed the people that were coming to the mission with me. I had made some great friendships and relationships. So the MTC, for the most part, was a good experience and as much as I see problematic things about it now um, but not really prominent in my mind any of that stuff but great experience feeling good couldn't wait to get out to Belgium and the Netherlands uh, really looking forward to serving the mission okay we we've actually managed to is as would you mind can we can we share this on our screen um let's let's have a little look okay. at, at what happened let's Hopefully, and I apologise for my daughter making all the noise in the background. <laughs> hopefully, we should be able, hopefully we should be able to share it here. You can let us know if this works or if it doesn't work. But this right here is is our Ben. Okay, so we don't even know if that actually, oh, do you know what? It didn't share properly and we just yeah. closed it down. Right, I'm so sorry, guys. That we'll, was a we'll moment of on. silence. We will. We'll, sh we'll share the link, but this is it. We have to. <laughs> oh, we will. <laughs> We've got all of your photographs from your years throughout the church. We're just going to go for it all. Um, okay, so you're now serving. You've got your assignment and you're starting off your first through your first few weeks you follow the spirit to keep keep talking about where you're up to in your story so i got sent to horn which was in the very 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 far north of north holland in the netherlands so north holland is like the province um and i was sent up to horn had a fantastic trainer um the most amazing ward that i could have possibly started in really really great folks uh, up there um that's true. I met my now sister-in-law in the MTC, Kidding, That's true. I met her before I met my wife. <laughs> um, yes. Uh, so head out there. Um, it's cold. It's wet. We're close to the sea. <laughs> uh, I started to struggle a little bit, and we were really knocking doors an awful lot. And it became so obvious to me that knocking doors was completely useless. Now there were what do you call them? Assistants to the president and. Um, other missionaries, and there's, there'll still be people to this day that will argue with me that it that it was productive, but I'm sorry, it wasn't. <laughs> um, knocking doors was not productive. Culturally, it just was a, a breach of people's privacy. It was 
rude in that country to knock doors. Now, don't get me wrong, many people in my mission had success knocking doors. I don't deny that. But it wasn't working for me, and I was not going to do that for two years, not even for the Lord. <laughs> um, and I don't think he expected me to do that because he values my mental health a lot more than he values my ability to mundanely knock doors for two years. And so I went to my mission president and said, look, um, I... I'm not feeling overly productive. I feel like I'm not achieving anything. I have an idea. Um, I'm musical. I've shared the gospel for the last few years via music. Allow me to put together a quartet of four elders. We'll put together a, a show that is approachable for members and non-members alike. And let me tour the whole mission. Let me visit every single area. Let us perform in every single warden branch. And uh, and let me do that for the duration of my mission, and I will be a lot more successful. And and I said, and, and what we'll do is the week before our performance in that area, we'll go out and we will role play with the members to teach them how to invite people to this event and to uh, build confidence in the members and build a relationship with the members. And so, my mission president, Alden Robinson, I love him to this day. Uh, one of the greatest men I have ever uh, ever been associated with. Um, he believed in it straight away. He loved music and he said, if you can make it happen, you have my support. <laughs> and so uh, in the space of, I think, six weeks, is probably my um, companions at the time could, could correct me, but in the space of about, of about six weeks, we wrote a, a, an hour and, hour and a half show, which... Um, kind of pointed out principles of the church and principles of the plan of salvation and the restoration. We, there was a whole part about Joseph Smith um, in a very, very approachable, non-doctrinal, indoctrinating way. Um, and we used, uh, took my inspiration from Our Story Goes On, which I've performed in many times. I've directed Our Story Goes On here in the UK since, where we tell stories of life um, and how the gospel and is, can be interwoven into those experiences and bless people's lives. And so for my whole um, mission, I uh, toured, um, visited every single area, almost, apart from one, um, visited uh, almost every unit, ward or branch, um, and we were known as the Zingin' the Elders, so the Singing Elders. And believe it or not, the Netherlands had their very own singing elders in the 60s and 70s that did the same thing. But I had, really? I had no idea. It was someone that told me later on and they had actually saved uh -huh. the news articles of, of that were in the newspaper of that. So uh, me and these four other elders, these three other elders, we had gained celebrity status in the church in the Netherlands and Belgium. People were traveling long distances to see the show before it got to their area because word just spread like it does in the Mormon world. Um, and really, the groundwork wasn't necessarily done by us four elders in terms of baptisms and confirmations. It was the missionaries that stayed in that area that rode the wave that we had kind of started off. So really credit to them for the, the success um, that was had on the mission. Um, and so there was success. It, what kind of difference did it make in terms of numbers and there was, know, an in there was an increase in baptisms and confirmations, certainly. I don't know how great that increase was. I don't think it was quantified, difficult to quantify. But there was an increase in contacts. That was the biggest thing. 
missionaries in areas were left with more contacts because they would obviously proselytise before and after and get referrals from the people that members had invited who were feeling very, very inspired. You know, I was participating in just the best, the best structured affinity fraud I can imagine. <laughs> Um, but it was really successful and uh, it was an incredible experience and actually uh, two of the original singing elders that I worked with remain the and I, and I don't speak to them very often at all but they remain two of the most incredible people in my life, the most influential people in my life and some of the greatest friends uh, I've ever made and I had the richest experience touring Belgium and the Netherlands. I still feel Dutch through and through. Um, sorry to Belgium. Uh, <laughs> you know, I am Scottish, but I feel very, 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 very Dutch. And my ancestry is Dutch paternally. Um, I love I love the country, love the people, love the members, and had an incredible experience, um, you know, generally speaking, touring that mission and getting to know those people and growing to love them and having some of the most sacred experiences with, you know, for example, a, a, a lady and her husband who we visited who had a young family. This lady was terminally ill. Um, she had been given a prognosis a period of time before they anticipated her passing. And we as a singing elders were able to visit her home and sing a song that still means a lot to me. It's called the Pilgrim Song. The Mormon Tabernacle Choir performed it. And the line is, I'm going to live forever. And that's a truth I still believe in. And it's a truth I believed in at the time. And we were able to sing that intimately in her home. Um, and uh, and to me, that remains one of the most sacred experiences I've had to date. Uh, and I still reflect on my experiences, for the most part, as extremely sacred um, and extremely beautiful and uh, so rich, you know, traveling and meeting these people and performing for them and and I gave my life to it <laughs> I could not give any well, more well and, and you you all were things at home um in the meantime you before you've left for your mission Alan has returned to church activity um your your family had a tough time it was like everything that could possibly be thrown at your family was was all happening um you were obviously concerned about your family too but you're having these incredible spiritual experiences and your family are holding on to those too what what happened in terms of what happened to to me <laughs> Yeah. Um, so I think um, to put it in, let me just be really honest right now. When you've asked that question, the first thing that's come to my mind, and this is just to illustrate for you what I'm about to speak about, which is my concern over the dangerous uh, and life-threatening cultures that exist on missions and my experience with that that when you ask that question, the very first thing I think about, I can see certain missionaries that were in the mission at the time. And I'm thinking, are they watching this? Because I know that they had a completely different opinion. They did not think I worked my ass off. They did not think I was successful as a missionary. So that just shows how much I'm still affected by it. And it's, it's really frustrating to think that that would be the thought that would come to me, but that, you know, that's me just being vulnerable and honest. Um, 
I led this whole project. I did have the administrative assistance of um, someone that I absolutely love, him and his wife, uh, that were missionaries from the Netherlands that were called to serve in that mission, that um, were a huge, 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 huge help administratively to the project. But for the most part, I was, and I should say that my other companions, uh, Elder Reese, Elder Konachi, and Elder Power, were completely supportive and amazing, incredible uh, people. And uh, so I, for the most part, I felt like I had a lot of weight on my shoulders. Uh, I felt a huge sense of responsibility to make this project successful because I was the one that said, I'm not going to do the run of the mill mission. I'm no not indoors. <laughs> I uh, I want to do something more meaningful. I'll jump something. in real quick and just ask something. So see when you said that there were some missionaries who said that you didn't work your butt off basically, do you think that's because you weren't doing the normal run of the mill? So they thought that that wasn't a mission? Do you feel I that? that? I think that yes, but also we were still young and immature and in my mm -hmm. opinion they were very jealous of the fact that and they may disagree, but to me it was blatantly obvious that many people were jealous of my position. And mm -hmm. I get that. There were people yeah. out there knocking doors all day and I was travelling around and getting to perform and sing. Yeah. Um, but they could have taken their own initiative and they could have, you know, started their own projects. And, uh, you know, their misery doesn't discredit my success and their jealousy yeah. doesn't discredit my efforts. Um, you know, I gave my life to it. Literally, you know, gave my life to it almost... Um, and so I think as well what I've got to say is at that you tend to see mental illnesses surface and you tend to see people, uh, not just people that are on missions, but I think it's just to do with the age of young adults that people start to become very symptomatic of their mental ill health around 18, 19, 20, 21. Research has shown that, um, that, that, that that's a Point where a lot of people can become very symptomatic um, and so I had a lot of pressure on my shoulder I was traveling around a lot I was tired and towards so that so the project started in 2000 and um, 2015 to 2014 I went on my mission 2015 is when the project started um, towards the end of the year in the middle of the year um, my lifeline at the time was my friend Elder Power Lane Power Felt like he was keeping me alive. It was my companion. He'd gone home. He'd finished his mission. So I knew Singing Elder had transferred in. But then my mission president was also finishing his three years as well. We were getting a new mission president. Um, and it was clear from the very, very beginning that this mission president did not support the project, wanted to take a traditional approach, didn't take away from the fact that the project had been successful, but wanted to wrap it up as soon as the tour was ending. And the plan was to end the tour, to visit everywhere and to do a, a farewell concert, farewell Christmas concert uh, in Zutermere, which is where the temple was, the newest church building with the state-of-the-art equipment. We got a big budget for it. You know, a, an external company bringing in sound and AV equipment. Big, massive deal. This concert was huge. And people were travelling from England and people were travelling from France to come and see this. It was the last chance to see you know, the, the modern day singing elders, I suppose. And I was trying, towards the end of 2015, I was trying to write this show and have it ready. It was just me that was doing it on my own. And I'm not talking about writing the dialogue. Um, I'm talking about writing vocal arrangements, which can be so tiring, writing arrangements for violin.
violin for piano. Uh, our friend came up from Belgium to play the piano and a world-class violinist, Vesna Groupman, you can Google her, she's world-renowned, member of the church in the Netherlands, was playing violin. And all of these people come in for the final concert. And I felt a great deal of pressure to, to um, make this concert what everyone was hoping it to be. At the same time, I was aware that my mission president didn't support, my new mission president didn't support the project. There were, um, I started to become very impatient with those around me. I started to be nasty to those around me, even though I loved my, my fellow singing elders, loved them more than anyone at the time. Um, I noticed myself starting to become very, very irritable, very, very exhausted, very down and frustrated and sad about the fact that the project was ending. Why is it ending? Um, it's, 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 it's been successful, it's made a difference, why is it coming to an end? Um, starting to hear whispers from other uh, elders and other sisters saying, you know, that I'm not working hard. Mm -hmm. I got a terrible yeah. phone call from the assistants to the president where they were saying, you're not working hard enough and, you know, you need to, you, you, even if you're still... Uh, touring we were, we were still responsible for the area that we were assigned to our base we were still responsible for proselytizing there on our days off and our numbers were not great because we were tired we were absolutely exhausted when we came back from traveling to belgium and, and touring and meeting with people and the majority of people we met with were having incredible spiritual experiences and there was emotions and so we're exhausted it was difficult to keep up with the schedule and continue to proselytize on a days off so feeling a lot of pressure about getting the concert right and feeling completely unsupported by the mission president and the assistance to the president um and feeling sad that the project is coming to an end and dreading the fact that i knew i would be going back to knocking doors and i felt like it didn't work and it was just destroying me and then feeling so ashamed and so angry with myself that i was treating the people around me so poorly um it eventually came to a head when we were in rotterdam rehearsing very late at night beyond missionary curfews i think i had been awake i reckon looking back at kind of journals and emails i reckon i had been awake for three days and had maybe only had like a 10 minute nap in cars going to get food and whatnot i had only been eating bananas and drinking water I was just constantly working on the Christmas concert and absolutely pushing the other elders to their limits to practice the arrangements till all hours to get this concert right. I became so fixated on getting this perfect and I think I wanted to prove myself to the mission president. I wanted to prove that it could be successful. So there was, there was just so much pressure. I hadn't eaten for three days very much. I was only drinking um you know, a little bit of water and just working, 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 had barely slept. Um, and my, um, one of the other elders um, had found me in the bathroom, completely delirious, coming in and out of consciousness and extremely unwell. And I cannot thank this elder enough. Uh, that's uh, Elder Conacci um, from Brazil. He knew that uh, although him and I weren't companions at the time, so we wouldn't be going back to the same apartment together, he knew that I would only feel safe with him. 
uh, and he knew just because of the dynamics at the time and relationship issues that I had caused with my companion, um, he phoned the mission president and essentially instructed him on what he would be doing. He said, I'm doing what's best for Elder Hunter and I'm taking him home and I'm taking care of him and he needs medical attention. And so uh, I was taken home and I just rested uh, for, I think, two days or so. I can't really remember. It's a bit of a blur. It was complete burnout and it was extreme depression, um, depression that I have not ever experienced before then or since then. And suicide ideation very strong self-deprecating thoughts and just wanting to end all the pressure and all the shame and all the guilt as quickly as i could um yeah a complete and utter mission burnout there was no one there keeping me safe and so apart from uh lipe konachi right that, that other elder um and so Ben, that's what I wanted to wanted to ask about. You you mentioned he's the person that you feel safe with. What what kind of physically safe, emotionally, spiritually, mentally safe? Everything. Um, okay. I felt very 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 safe and very very affectionate towards uh, this elder. Um, and and we were very very close friends. Um, so he... the natural thing that may that it makes me want to ask is then you've clearly then feeling not safe with yeah okay F feeling extremely lonely uh, feeling you know like I, there's no one support me here i'm completely burning out i'm running out of options I, i'm trying to run this project uh, and i feel like there's not really anyone supporting me and uh yeah feeling feeling like i'm this, this isn't safe this doesn't feel right Something is going terribly wrong. I am I am not a nasty person. Why am I being so horrible to these people I love? Um, it was a total, total mental breakdown. At this point, how often can you speak to home? Uh, the rules at the time were you could only email home once a week. And our rules were that you spent, uh, I believe it was half an hour emailing home and then 15 minutes emailing your mission president that was the rules um and i broke them all the time i would email for as long as i wanted to and i couldn't care less to be perfectly honest with you and actually once i started to get really really unwell i um contacted home as often as i i uh, i wanted um i just didn't care anymore yeah <laughs> yeah so yeah, it was difficult because the people that I felt I would usually rely on for emotional support when I'm feeling that way, although I hadn't felt that way up until that point, um, you know, was um, my family, my parents, you know, every, and I didn't have access to them. I really, really didn't. And also, to begin with, I didn't want to tell them what was going on. I didn't want to. Um, I didn't want to worry them. I didn't want anyone to think I was coming home early. Uh, I just, I just wanted to keep it to myself. I was in denial a bit as well. Um, so. It was all of that. It was all of that. So you are undiagnosed as some kind of potential mental health condition maybe beginning to surface. You have a lack of sleep. You are tired from the sheer volume of work you're doing. And keep um, in mind, I'd been touring two countries for almost a year as well. Travelling. To that, yeah. Um, you, you're 
diet is clearly not being maintained effectively. You know, it's the, it's the first thing that goes when, when you're on a mission. You don't have a whole lot of choice around what you're doing there. There's the physical requirements, the you know, the, the spiritual pressure, the highs and lows of of all of that. You, you have little contact with your family. You're very isolated. There is one person that you're feeling safe with in contrast to feeling generally unsafe. It's going to come to a head. Yeah. Yeah, and it did. Um, when the project ended, we got through the, the Christmas concert. It didn't come out unscathed right enough. It was traumatic to, to some extent. Um, but uh, we finished the Christmas concert, the program, the, the, the tour roundup, the project ended, and then we were receiving transfer calls. So that's when you call, you're called and you get your new assignment. Mm -hmm. And we are taught that those assignments are made by spiritual revelation, that the Lord reveals to the mission president and the assistants um, where it is you have to go next. And so the mission president knew that I was suffering. And by the way, I must say the other elders were suffering. Um, you know, one other uh, elder in, in particular was really, really suffering at the time. And although I withdrew from him because I thought if I, I can't rely on him because he's unwell too. Um, but the mission president was aware that our mental health was not in a good way. So um, what is that what a missionary is supposed to do when you feel like you're either unwell or you need some kind of help? You, your mission president is your go-to person. Yeah. How soon, how quickly were you able to recognise it in yourself to be able to tell him? So I didn't, and I didn't tell him, but it was that companion. Right. It, okay. was, it was Elder Konachi that had contacted him to kind of give him an idea of what was going on when I had kind of collapsed and was unable to function. Okay. Um, so he was aware of it, and the other elder had been in touch with him. Um, but he is responsible for the well-being and safety of all missionaries in that mission. Um, he has that responsibility. I think some missions they have the dynamic where the white the, the mission president's wife kind of takes part responsibility for the health of the missionaries. I don't really know how it works, um, but ultimately he's responsible for those hundreds of lives in that mission, depending on where the mission is. Yes, so your family can kind of almost feel they're going to continue to be worried, but you have someone who's looking after you, and they have been made aware that there's this really big thing going on with you and they're clearly going to follow up about that they're clearly going to help make sure that you get treatment and we don't have to worry too much right no because unfortunately again these leaders are ill-equipped Ill to deal with these things and this leader was 100 percent. this mission president was at the time and in my experience completely incapable of dealing with this level of of mental ill health and let me say sorry ben on you go please let me say that the church does the church really does a disservice to the leaders that it calls they've got bishops in the crooks and crannies of the world that they could be you know 26 year old bishops that are trying to counsel marriages just based on discernment and spiritual gifts it's diabolical and they've got mission presidents who could be fundamentalist, Republican, COVID-denying, climate change-denying, and let me not get too political, but you know the type of person 
I'm uh, I'm describing, and it, you know that that that's the opposite end of the spectrum. That's just as harmful as well. You know, over destigmatized individuals as well that are responsible for these young people, and they're ill-equipped to do it. They they do not know how to deal with those things, and he clearly did not have a clue how to deal with this. So at that point in time, before I was transferred to my next area to begin a regular mission again. Uh, there was no offer of treatment. I think there was a little bit of counsel from the mission president, um, but there was no offer of treatment. There was no extra support. There was no option to contact home um, to speak to them. It's just be faithful. There's good things coming. Once a project has ended and you've moved to your next city, it'll be a new start, a new beginning, and the Lord will will send you somewhere that you'll be safe. I, in the I can't help but feel, and obviously I don't know your mission president at the time, I can't speak to him, I can't help but feel as well within the church that there is this, and not so much the church, I mean, I think it's a generational thing as well of this whole, you know, there's no mental health, you know, just pull your socks up, get on with it, you know. Some people don't believe in, in a thing as mental health, um, I mean, it, it, it saddens me, you know, and that's what people always go back to is that leader roulette, you know, because, you know, your mission president did the total opposite to what my mission president done. My mission president, who was amazing, um, you know, got me to a GP um, to get that sorted, allowed me to call home at the time and on a regular basis afterwards to try to help me to steer my mission because he knew deep down I didn't want to go home. But at the time, I was like, I need to go home. So I think, I think again, like you say, it's a mixture of the leader roulette, the lack of training, to how two mission presidents dealing with a very similar thing. Because, I mean, I was really severely depressed at this point. Like, I wanted to go home. I was not staying on that mission. I was nasty to my companion, you know. But the two completely different paths in your story to my story, where I got the help I needed to compare to you who didn't and was being basically told to just get on with it and have faith. Also, though, um, I, I mean, it does make me wonder about the male-female dynamic, if it's more socially acceptable for you to have had mental health issues than it is for a man to have mental health issues. And <coughs> just sort of putting that out there. But what I'm interested too is there isn't... Um, this is not new. You are not. You both are not the only missionaries who've ever experienced <clears throat> mental health trauma, burnout, things mm. like that on their mission. So to use the fact that we we don't have enough training mm. or that people don't have enough experience. I mean, it's no rocket science. You know that people are going to get sick. You know that young people away from home are are going to struggle, especially when you've been so um you know supported and and your ward to, to find even just those types of natural challenge the physicality of what the work that you're doing it, it's an it's it's waiting to happen to sort of be blind to that is it's almost like willful ignorance you're choosing not to do your damn job absolutely and uh you know i work for the scottish ambulance service now and i don't do not have enough fingers and toes to rhyme off for you the mental <laughs> health support services that we have available to our members of staff. I mean, I'm I'm continually as a manager making referrals to get people the help that they need within 24 hours that that work for us. And you contrast that to 18 year old boys. And by the way, I also taught at the MTC and I saw amazing, amazing young men and young women come through 
the MTC to sit, that had been signed off to serve missions um, who were extremely vulnerable, whether it was um, their additional needs that they had or whether it was um, their, their emotional state at the time. But in my opinion, we, we, we very irresponsibly send people, young, young people on missions who are vulnerable anyway to go into an environment where the culture can can potentially become very very toxic. I'm not saying that as a general rule of thumb, but you know, because I don't want to speak generally, because there'll always be someone that disagrees. Um, but but it's a culture that can be very very toxic, that can be dangerous and detrimental to well-being and to life, and to not have, um, at least at the time, it seemed to me there was no access to. Um, to, to, to mental health support services when you've got a breeding ground for mental health complications just by how it's fundamentally structured and set up. So in my opinion and based on my experiences, missions, I can't speak to all of them again, but in my experience, are, are unsafe environments and they are they can be very they can be dangerous environments in terms of people's lives and people's health and there is a hell of a lot of work to be done in order to make missions safe i mean i think of my uh, wife alicia who served in the adriatic north mission in serbia croatia and bosnia who as a young female <coughs> realised in her first couple of weeks that the person whose home she was in was actually on the phone negotiating with a human trafficker and price for her. Uh, and then uh, and then also who has experienced a stalker from her mission who, and years after her mission, when he found out that she was engaged to me and not him, travelled from Serbia to Alicia's hometown in Germany armed with the intention to cause harm but i mean and uh and I, i'm sorry um i understand that there um are spiritual gifts and and i know that scripture speaks of them and i know that we can receive and it's you know christ taught that he can protect us and we can pray for protection but God also gave us a brain and he bloody expects us to use it as well as our spirituality. And the fact that young people are exposed to such dangerous circumstances, now obviously those are very, very specific and explicit circumstances, but just generally the structure of missions, having to get up so early, go to bed at the exact time, having a rigid schedule, knocking doors, doors slammed in your face, abuse shouted at you, people being spat on, sisters being threatened with horrible things. There weren't sister missionaries in, the, in Airdrie for so long because they were sexually assaulted in the 90s. There's they, also, I was supposed to go to Greece obviously on a summer mission where missionaries are regularly put in jail for proselyting. They obviously get out, but they're, they're spending some time in jail because of the proselyting laws that the police and things enforce over there, you know. And, and I... I know that people's response will be to this yeah but it's through those difficult experiences and those trials that we grow closer to christ and it's like i don't need a stalker chasing me across europe with knives 
to bring me closer to Christ. Yeah, God does not orchestrate these things. Um, he does not orchestrate the tragedies in our lives. Um, he he can he can be there for us and help us to overcome them, but he doesn't orchestrate the tragedies. And it's just a very very easy cop out when people just will not admit that missionaries that missions have the potential to be fundamentally dangerous. We have, you know, on all accounts, uh, but specifically for me, I can speak to my experiences in terms of mental health. I was so close to being a statistic, a life lost, a missionary lost, because of the lack of training and education and uh, psychological support and access to psychological support that I needed. Now, I was eventually, I get sent to Bruges, by the way, the way that we pronounce that in Flemish and Dutch is Brugge, believe it or not. And I can't believe I just said Bruges, I'm horrified with myself. But I was sent to the city of Bruges, which was known in the mission to be notoriously difficult. It was like the refiner's fire area. That's where you're sent to really grow close to the savior because it's such a horrible area to serve in. The branch is so small. Blah, 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 blah. Um, and so I was clearly sent there. They, in my opinion, the assistance to the presidents who um, had an issue with me at the time had perhaps made that suggestion. I'm speculating. Um, I know it's by inspiration, but I truly believe that I was sent there to try and circumvent me and to teach me a lesson. Um, I, I remember. I, I really, really believe that that's why I was sent to Bruges. They were like, "Oh, you've had it. You've, you've had it so easy, even though I didn't." So we're now going to send you to Bruges. We're going to put you right into the refiner's fire, and it was the most. It was the worst decision and the most uninspired decision that anyone has made that's influenced my life. Um, it was the worst decision possible for me because, it, as I say, it almost led to me losing my life due to the. The, the seriousness of my depression, the seriousness of my mood swings, and the isolation and the loneliness and the feelings of self-hate and shame and disgust and the exhaustion, um, the lack of motivation, the apathy, not even able to get out of bed in the morning, wanting to absolutely do my companion's panning, because, I mean bless his heart, but I just shouldn't have been put with someone like that, you know, based on what I was going through. So I was sent to Bruges. I'll give you this in a, in a bite size. That wasn't working out. So I was sent to the uh, now former assistant to the president that I didn't like. So I was sent to Brussels, the one that had kind of been gossiping about me behind my back, um, had even spread a rumour that I might possibly be gay, um, a very immature rumour to spread in the mission at, a at the time. Um, but I was sent to be under his careful watch in Brussels in a new area that he had just opened and then that obviously didn't work out. So I was sent with to be with another elder in uh, Maastricht in the Netherlands who was also suffering from serious mental health and it was the opinion of the mission president that if we were together we might be able to just lift one another up and be able to relate to one another. So that just illustrates just how completely uneducated, uninformed, risky and irresponsible these decisions were. Is he having regular discussions with you, the mission president? At this point, there were regular discussions uh, with him. He had authorised at this point more communication with home. So I told my mum 
that I was really, really struggling. I was in contact with my mum and dad a lot. I had been sent to an American psychiatrist in France that the church knew um, and had been given a bipolar 2 diagnosis um, at the time after speaking with him for a long time, was put on a medication and then just sent back to the city. Um, so there was no kind of... And, and that actually, I mean, we've been going a long time, but you could probably do a part two. But where it gets um, extremely concerning and frightening for me is that from my perspective, my mission president was doing all he could to stop me from going home early. In fact, he actually told me in an interview that he had with me that he had, at his mission president training with general authorities, he promised a prominent leader in the church that he would not let anyone go home early. He would do all he could to keep them on the mission. Now, that's just obviously impractical and illogical. That's not going to happen. But one of the most traumatic meetings that I had with this mission president is I told him that I felt I had to go home. I told him I, I feel very, very unwell. I feel very depressed and I feel like I want to harm myself and I don't want to be here anymore. I need to go home. I can't be here anymore. And his response was, in fewer words, well, Elder Hunter, you know that voice that they do. The Lord has spoken to me and it's not time for you to go home. You know, he felt because of the position that he was in that he could dictate to me when I could go home or not, and that the revelation was coming to him and that he was calling the shots. And so instead, instead I was sent to the office. So I had literally done another Russell stop tour of the, the countries, sent to the office, um, because in the office I wouldn't have to knock doors. So um, they obviously thought that was just a problem. If he doesn't need to knock doors, it would be magically better overnight, which obviously wasn't the case. These were deep-rooted, um, you know, psychological issues and chemical issues that were going on with me that needed treatment and not just medication and one consultation with a psychiatrist um and so i was sent to the office and eventually oh and by the way another thing um the communication between my mum and dad and the mission president was diabolical he was not communicating giving them updates and my communication with them was limited and also tainted by my illness. I wasn't gave, giving them a true reflection of what was going on and what my experience was. And they knew that. They knew that I was far more unwell than, than I was able to communicate to them. And so you would like to think that they were relying on him. Now, they he hadn't even contacted them to begin with. They had to initiate that contact and force that contact to happen. Um, and... My mum and dad were feeling frustrated that he wasn't entirely open and honest with them and that he wasn't listening to them. Um, and in fact, the, this mission president on a phone call with my dad actually chastised my dad, who just wanted to keep his son alive and was desperate, hundreds of miles away, barely able to communicate with me, worried that I'm so extremely unwell. Um, this mission president chastised my dad on the phone and told him that the way he spoke to a priesthood leader was inappropriate and was not within the spirit of the work. And all my dad was trying to do was to, to keep me alive. So um, moving on, I moved to the office. I just want to go home. I just want to, I just want my mum. <laughs> I just want my mum. That's mm -hmm. all I wanted. Um, and um, from, from the other side of that, I think it's 
it's worth mentioning that um so your family are very very private you know they 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 don't tend to um they, they wear their hearts in their sleeves they're they are there for everyone but they would never dream of talking about your personal business or you know alana's it's they are very protective of you know your own privacy and things like that so i just i had this sense um i mean you would have been the same but dialed right up that your parents are extremely distressed that your mum is really really upset and just wants to come get you mm-hmm. um and i think uh, do, do you want to say how you were I, feeling i just obviously you know you know your mum is very private and even me as a family member at that moment I didn't know the full story of what was going on because at that moment in time Tracy didn't have the headspace or the time to be telling everyone everything her main concern at that time was Ben Mm. and getting Ben home but we were also worried because knowing my sister she would have been on a plane and she would have went and got him you know and it was such a horrible time to watch, to see my sister in such a state, to hear of my nephew who was struggling, and again, because of a man who feels he's in power and thinks he knows what's best for someone who we just wanted home to keep safe. It was one of the most horrible times having to watch that from the backdrop, not even knowing the full picture. I knew there was so much more going on, but I understood why your mum held back on it, because... She didn't need all that going on. Everyone knew everything. Mm. We knew Ben was really unwell. We knew he needed to be home and we knew he wasn't getting to come home. And that was so hard at that time. It was a, such a hard time for all of our family. And it's not at all to make it about us because it was about Ben at that moment. But it, it was a very difficult time for all of us. It really was. And so we, you know, as as the people who are back home who um, have Ben's best interests at heart, I think it was really, really clear that this is the stalwart family in the ward. This is, this is, you know, th- these are the people you can rely on. There's, you know, this isn't sort of some sort of lack of faithfulness on the part of your parents or some kind of undermining of the priesthood. Um, this was genuine distress that you were not being looked after. And I think what um what what you say is absolutely right. We want to make sure that your journey is done justice to uh so what what i'd like to do if we could maybe we'll make sure that we we talk about everything from from this side of things but you don't leave the church after your mission you don't um you you continue to go on and and be doing incredible things and you come back and you are practically the savior of the ward um you know the 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 next great hope for the ward I think if um, I think if our state president, I would imagine this is based on not very much at all, but um, I think if our state president had a wish, it would be for people like you to come back. It's it's with people like you um, and Alicia that are sort of they, you're you're still the hope of the ward, whether you're there or not, whether you identify as Mormon or not. That's what people who are still in the church wish would be different pray would be different and so we want to talk about how how you can go from 
feeling suicidal on your mission, getting to getting your head around being on new medication in the first place, just even if you're not serving a mission, that's that's a that's a huge undertaking. Um and so I want to keep talking about your mission just now. And then if it's okay, we'd love to get you back for a part two where we talk about what happens afterwards because this is by no means the end of the story so you're talking with your mission president you are making it he cannot be misunderstanding how ill you are your parents certainly understand how ill you are what happens next um eventually uh, the process was started for me to return home um and uh, the as far as I'm concerned, still to this day, now again, there's always multiple sides to one story, but as far as I'm concerned, the mission president was either dishonest or uneducated on the process of leaving home early um, for that kind of reason. Of leaving your mission early. Yeah, um, can I just draw your attention just to this comment? Were you able to retain permission, uh, uh, possession of your passport? Yeah, we had our passports with us all the time. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, we had our passports with us all the time. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I had been moved to the office. Um, things were getting really, really bad. I had demanded, essentially, to go home. I told him that there was no question about it, but then he managed to delay the process for as long as he could. He completely rinsed it because he clearly was adamant that I should not be going home for whatever reason. Uh, so I started to really resent him. Uh, I was aware of numerous other people in the mission who were mentally unwell and were having a similar experience so I spoke to uh, one of those missionaries on the phone because I was close to him uh, we spoke about his experience and I did not hold back about my feelings about the mission president unfortunately someone else in the apartment that night heard that conversation and reported it to the mission president so I also then was receiving chastisement from the mission president for uh, for disrespecting priesthood leaders and not sustaining them um, even though the way he was dealing with this was just pathetic uh, for for everyone that I was speaking to in the mission that was suffering from mental ill health. And in fact, as far as I know, actually, after I left, another missionary in the mission was suffering so badly and the mission president was not allowing them to go home that their mother flew from America and drove to her apartment and picked her up and took her home and told the mission president once she was home. So, you know, other people were having an experience is what I've been led to believe. I cannot confirm that that story is true necessarily, but that's what I was told. And so I'm in the office. I've demanded to go home, but I knew he was delaying the process as best as he could. Um, he had me go and spend the day with uh, a stake president out there that I was close to, that I love and respect. But I think the mission president thought he would be influential in helping me be convinced to fight through it and overcome it. Um, and it didn't work, I, you know, I was so broken, I needed to go home, I was completely, completely done in, completely unwell, and just at the absolute pits of, of depression uh, and anxiety. Did you feel that at that time for him, that it was more about him keeping his promise to the fact that he'd said that he would make sure that no one went home early? Or Absolutely. Do you think it was more than that? 
I don't know why he was so adamant that I would stay on my mission. Um, maybe he just really believed that he had received revelation that it wasn't time for me to go. Um, I don't know, but he definitely yeah. <laughs> I, I think this is the time to bring in the, the phrase that we haven't used through this whole podcast, um, you know, and even in preparing for it, for it, but we have an issue, especially most recently the church in Scotland uh, and the United Kingdom and Ireland. We have an issue with recognising forms of abuse when we see it. Mm -hmm. and uh you know it's understandable it happens throughout so much of life but to call this what it is ecclesiastical abuse mm -hmm. someone has authority to make decisions or influence your life and they use their spiritual authority to do that to wield some kind of power over you and well, um, make no mistake if there's any <laughs> listening to this podcast that is not a member of the church this whole time they're probably thinking why did you not just go on a plane and go home right why would you not just go you can do that well actually yeah in practical terms i could have just done that <laughs> but um and obviously this may come up in more so in part two if we have it but i personally believe by by um by social science definition that the, the mormon church is cultish and I believe that I was very, very programmed in how I uh, thought. And in as much as I was unwell and needed to go home and knew I needed to go home, and in as much as I resented my mission president, I still wanted to do things right. I still wanted an honourable release. I was still proving myself to the Lord this whole time. Because again, if I didn't, then maybe I'm ruining people's chances at eternal happiness, including my own and my family's. So I think it's to remember as well that it's not just as simple as booking a flight because, you know, cost comes into it. And as a missionary, you're very limited on what money you have. You know, you're, you're given basically a budget to live off each week or each month, you know, and it, and it also comes into it. If you're not from a wealthy family, now I don't know how much a flight costs from where you were to come home, you know, but, but that's just another example of what might come into it for other missionaries. You know, it, it's financially, you don't have huge amounts of money as a missionary there. So it's not just as black and white as just book a flight and go home. Yeah, but it, I mean, you're but you're absolutely right. It is ecclesiastical abuse, and um, and obviously, I've made my feelings clear about this man, this mission president. I, you know, I don't beat around the bush in terms of that. It was abusive, um, but I feel it would be unfair of me not to say that again that he hadn't been adequately trained. He hadn't been adequately equipped. He had been set up by failure by the institution. It's how things are set up. It's the it's the root of the problem that has to be solved. Yep. And it's not going to be solved until the root of it is solved and people accept that missions are fundamentally dangerous and unhealthy. Um and uh, and and so I, I have got to say that. Um he was a he was a soft spoken man, he was gentle, he was you know, um thoughtful, uh Obviously, I rack my brain trying to find positive things about him because I, I have, <clears> um, and that's a whole other story, by the way, is my process of forgiveness. <laughs> um, but but it is ecclesiastical abuse, whether or not he was aware of it, and he is accountable for that abuse, no matter whether he's aware of it or not. Um, and so where there is abuse, there is there is the trauma that, that you live with. So could, could we maybe then, could we maybe then move on to, 
How the hell did you get away? So my mum really, really lost her patience. Essentially, the dishonesty that I feel existed was that the mission president told me that I was not able to go home until I'd spoken to my stake president at home. I had to have a conversation with him. And I think he was travelling at the time. Or I don't know why we, we couldn't get a hold of him. The mission president may not have even tried to contact him. I don't know. It was in his nature. Um, but eventually when I did speak to that stake president, it had been drawn out for about five weeks at this point. Um, eventually when I spoke to the stake president at home, I said to him, I need to come home. There's no, there's no, you know, two ways about it. But I was told I had to speak to you before that could happen. It was like, that's not true. That isn't true. You don't need to speak to me before you can be released, medical release to come home. Um, and so that's where I feel the dishonesty comes from or or just a lack of knowledge on what the due process is. Either way, it was messy, irresponsible, and it was someone that was extremely unwell you were dealing with, so you should have known your stuff. Do you know what I mean? So I think, actually, my mum threatened to contact the police and report me as kidnapped. That's how serious it got. Uh, my mum threatened the mission president and told him, if you do not get my son home, I will report you to the local police as having kidnapped him. Um, and I won't get into that, in my opinion, on that, <laughs> um, because it's a strong accusation, but it was just a, a threat from my mum. And uh, within an hour, I had an itinerary in my inbox. It was as easy yeah. as that. And uh, I flew home, um, got home, was back with my family. And I it was a bit of a blur that day, but after I had seen the family at the airport, we all went back to my mum's, I'm sure. Um, and I was on the buzz of the day. I've seen everybody again. And I think eventually everyone slowly left and it was just my mum and dad. And maybe my brother had gone to bed, I'm not sure. Um, but I remember after everyone had left, and I had, you know, waved goodbye and we closed the door. I remember just collapsing and just lying on the living room floor. Because that since I came back, I was uh, just speaking to everyone the whole time and with the family. Uh, so I'm sure I collapsed and just lay on the floor in the hallway. Um, and I think I just cried. I have a memory of that. My mum would be able to tell me whether or not that's exactly how it happened. But I just... Um, I just, it was just, it all came out at that point. Um, so that that's eventually how I got home, was my mum. When you're saying about, you know, yeah, maybe for some people thinking, right, that's a bit harsh or a bit extent to your mother um, suggesting that you were kidnapped. But, you know, as a mother myself, you know, you would do anything to protect your children. It's a mother's plea. Like, I don't see any other way here. We've tried doing it the correct way. We've been through the proper channels. We're trying to communicate. And this guy in my opinion, was holding you against your will. And that, that's how I viewed it, because you had made it very clear as an adult, yeah, some people might see you as a child, but you were an adult by age, and you were telling him, I want to go home. It should have been done as quickly as it was done when your mum made that threat. And him and all his powers did nothing. And, you know, I agree with you. I do believe there's been lies told. I do believe that... You know, and I think there's a chain of command within the church. So I guess I'm pushing back a little bit and you're saying, you know, that 
he maybe just didn't know. But I'm sorry, if you don't know something or the process of something, he has a chain of command, so to speak, where he can then go to the next level and find out what the process is for that. Mm -hmm. So he blatantly was trying to keep you there against your will. And that, that's how I viewed it at the time. You might have different views. Other people might have different views. But as a mother, I would do the very same thing to, to protect my child and to get them the help they need. So yes. I... I, and, I and, and again, my opinion now is um, completely different. If you are a 20-year-old adult, you should not give two shits about what another adult says, whether they're a priesthood leader or not. You do what's best for you. If you go home, you tell them you're going home. If you're on your mission and you are unwell, you speak in no uncertain terms and you tell them what you need and it should be done for you because you're an adult. You are not being held hostage. You should not be held against your will. Um, and again, this is where the, 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 the cultish nature of the church, in my opinion, comes in. I shouldn't have to request to go home. If I mm. go home, I'm going to tell you that I'm going home and you book me a flight and you send me home. It's as simple as that. Now, one interesting thing, and it'll be really interesting if you have a different view on this, but from the outside looking in, um, your family, unlike what could happen in many church families, um, your family were just like Ben's coming home. There wasn't any judgment. There wasn't any um, yeah, around it. Normal homecoming, banners at the airport, everything. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, they, they had been with you there, you know, and... I, I know I, like, oh. I was thinking that too um I kept showing Ronan the the video of you coming home over and over again and your mum yeah. just wouldn't stop hugging you it was oh there we go <laughs> and but again this is my impression and I do live in clouds cuckoo land a lot of the time the ward seemed to just have no question about it either it was just like you know Ben's home and there didn't seem to be a taboo around it. No, the word were great. The word were fantastic. No shame at all. Um, but actually, since we spoke, I do remember feeling, so when missionaries come home, they need to report to the High Council. Some completely um, useless meeting that missionaries, they have to report to them for some strange reason. Um, and I do remember in that, that I felt uncomfortable. I felt a lack of compassion just even in their faces. Um, I felt awkward, you know, people thinking, oh, he should be home early. They didn't really know why he was home early. So, the, you know, they're obviously making their judgments. So actually, I didn't think about that when we were planning the, mm -hmm. um, the, the, the uh, podcast. Um, but I do remember thinking that that meeting was completely useless and a complete waste of time and left me feeling a, a little ashamed of coming home when I met with the High Council. And so um, you got to speak in the ward about um having had having come home right you yeah i didn't speak in detail i just said that i came home due to due to medical reasons yeah and what was quite interesting to me that i i just feel really sort of selfish about i guess is that um you brought home a, a lot of you brought home your music along with you you know you brought home 100% you and while you're healing and while you're recovering from all of that while most people don't know that you've got anything especially to recover from you 
I, I remember you you brought back a song which I was really ill at the time whenever uh, you you had come home and it impacted me so much that I remember um just having this this huge powerful emotional reaction to it and I felt like that song that you sung that day and the weeks coming home from your mission was literally one of the things that would go on and save my life mm-hmm. um and I'm really really thankful for your talents Ben you're amazing you. okay is there anything I'd, I'd like to talk about you deconstructing and recovering from your mission before we before we leave it there and, and yeah I do want to talk about forgiveness but let's talk about healing and recovery first let's talk about recovery um so to be perfectly honest I didn't really um speak openly to my family about my suffering I think when I came home I took a very holistic approach at trying to uh, recover and improve um, I ended up that summer, I came home in the January and ended up that summer in Nauvoo again when I probably wasn't entirely well enough to be in Nauvoo. Uh, I was in America doing the pageant for three months. Um, but the person that was instrumental in my healing was a lady called Alexandra Mackenzie-Johns. <laughs> um, and Alex, uh, I would say, is still one of my greatest friends, one of my best friends. She lives in Jordan just now. Uh, she's about to move to Utah. She's got a job at BYU, which is uh, fantastic. But Alex was the original director that cast me in the first British pageant that I did. Um, and uh, when I came home from my mission, uh, I had appendicitis and had to get surgery, so my appendix got taken out. But then I went to Jersey Channel Islands, where Alex lived, and uh, they didn't know anything about why I came home, just that I was released medically. Um, and I opened up to them and I was in their home and for about three nights we spoke about it every night and Alex just told me everything I needed to hear at the time. Um, she was able to get me in touch with what's called the infield representative, the IFR, so that the structure of um, missions is that there's like a one representative in Europe or maybe two that cover a number of missions and that's a mission president's middleman to general authorities that was a structure at the time so i was able to raise my concerns with them i was able to raise my concerns with um stephen allen who was the managing director of the missionary department at the time um, so she was able to get me in touch with people where i could raise my valid concerns <clears throat> over the safety of missions and share my experience although it seems that nothing really came out of that and I didn't get great responses from either of them um, in the meetings. I was just told that it was kind of sent to, to try me. Um, but yeah, um, I understand that the British pageant was very much Stephen Absolutely was not Stephen Kerr's baby. <laughs> absolutely not. Um, I am not personally a, a fan of, of Stephen Kerr politically, um, so I'm not commenting on him uh, in that regard. I respect the work that he did at the British pageant. He was the pageant president, which is an ecclesiastical leader. Um, but it was not his baby. It was in every way Alex Mackenzie-John's baby. In every way. It was her vision. Um, she did not from uh, the early 2000s. It was her vision to bring it. And yes, yeah, Stephen Kerr may have been instrumental in bringing it over to the UK, but it was not his. Absolutely not. 100% not. 
And we'll talk a little bit more about pageanty type things because I have questions about pageants, yes, how yes. they work, and um, you know, sort uh, of and, and a lot of the healing came through being in Nauvoo yeah. in the summer and being around people that I loved and peer support. I think it, it non-clinically is one of the best things that we can have in terms of treatment. Is <laughs> just peer support, having people around lovers <clears throat> that cheer us on. Yeah, and the experience is certainly seeing Alana's, um, you know, time in performing in the pageants, um, the pageant and the World War One commemoration. We, we we will come back and talk about about those those things and your continuing career. Um, I I guess what I what I'm wondering about is, have you met have you met Alicia by this time? Have you? No, uh, so Alicia and I didn't right. meet until 2018, uh, and I was home in 2016. Right, so we'll hold on to that for the moment then, and we'll talk about Alicia more in part two um, appropriately. Of course, we'll not talk about Alicia. We will, because Alicia's her own person, and if Alicia wants to tell her story, she will. Um, but how does normal life look for you after a mission then? With a new diagnosis, um, what the hell is your life supposed to look like now? Um, how do you just settle back to normality? Is there a normality? No, I didn't really, I've never really had a very normal life. I don't like normality. Um, I don't like, I feel that my scenery should never stay the same. And so I got involved in the, the pageant that summer very, very quickly. I actually moved back to the Netherlands for a few weeks to, to work. Um Oh yeah, we get married in 2018, but we met. Oh, yeah, Yes, thank you for that, Alicia. They actually met in 2017. Just fact checking for us there and keeping Ben right. Um, so yeah, no, I didn't hang about in Scotland um, after the Novi pageant. I was here for a little while, but then the British pageant was coming back to the UK, and I started to. Um, I was uh, assistant director for the British pageant in 2017. So started touring the UK and Ireland, uh, holding auditions for that. So I kept very busy and uh, I tried to just heal through. You kept very busy and upset your auntie all the while because I was raging at him because he kept leaving. Yes, I <laughs> and then I had quite a close, good relationship. And I, I was just like, why do you keep leaving? Stop leaving. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. But yeah, a lot of my healing experiences came through peer support, conversations with supportive people, and I did meet with a private therapist for a number of sessions over in America. Wonderful. I'm I'm so glad that you are because let's face it, with mental health, you know, um there is no a pill or a therapy that's gonna make everything suddenly fixed and better. So um Thank you for sharing what your journey continues to look like as you continue to heal. You mentioned forgiveness earlier on, and I want to hear your thoughts about forgiveness in terms of the abuse that you experienced. It's a difficult one. That's probably what I would say is the, the most difficult topic of all of it because um, I really, really didn't want to um, forgive the mission present, but I realised very, very quickly I wasn't forgiving him for his sake. I was forgiving him for my sake. It was a gift to myself um, so that I could just move on and uh, and just, you know, be able to, to, to not continue. 
continue to just resent and to hold a grudge. That that was extremely important to me that I was able to to move on. Um, and so a lot of that was advice and help and support from um, Alex, again, supportive conversations with her and some other friends around me, but Alex had had her own experiences of forgiving some really difficult things that had happened to her. And uh, she was really able to teach me and, and guide me in how to, to forgive um, those situations. And uh, I'm able to forgive without feeling affectionate towards someone. And I'm able to forgive without excusing their wrongdoings and without excusing the abuse. It's just forgiveness that sets me free, that allows me to, to, just, um, to just move on from it. Um, and uh, it was mainly through supportive conversations and declaring my forgiveness internally about 100 times a day and just continuing to remind myself that I have forgiven and you know the first and second and third day eventually you, you declare it a little less um and then uh, and then you feel you feel whole again yeah i think we're having a mic issue um there's a really great question that's that's come through that i i, I want to comment about a about forgiveness first that I think when it comes to any matter matter of abuse you we need to jump steps in the church and forgiveness you know we are told explicitly that we are accountable if we don't forgive and it, it puts all of this onus on someone who's been abused to get to some kind of stage that it just might never happen in this life. It might not be right for them. It, I mean, maybe it will, um, but that doesn't have to be part of their journey. And I think it's great that you have a healthy way to to look at what forgiveness looks like for you. Um, that This really great question, though, I think plays exactly into that. So um, our friend Paul is asking... What with what you know and experience, what would you tell prospective missionaries? I considered this question probably the last time I considered it is when I was still active in the church. And I disagree with that answer that I had back then. So I've never actually considered that question since I left the Mormon church. Um you know, with what I know and what I've experienced, what would I tell prospective missionaries? I would tell them to probably deeply, deeply search their soul and decide if serving a mission is something they truly desire to do for themselves. Do not serve a mission to please anyone, including yourself. Um, serve a mission because it's something that you want to do. And if you feel it's something that will help you forge your spiritual path, and, and help to, to forge your life path, then absolutely go for it. Because in as much as I had a horrible experience on my mission, and we've been speaking about that for a long time, if you remember at the beginning, I did say that some of the richest experiences and most beautiful sacred experiences I've ever had were on uh, my Mormon mission. And so it's a very difficult place to be in because I see the benefits of mission, but I also see the dangers. And those dangers are unique to people, individuals, um, personal 
vulnerabilities. And so I would just remind prospective missionaries that it's, it's so opposite to the advice you're given in the MTC. You're literally shown a talk by David A. Bednar numerous times, if you want, in the MTC about the character of Christ and getting over yourself. What people might want to see that talk more than once? Yeah, they show it, show it over and over and over again okay. um, for you to go see it. And it's about overcoming yourself and not caring about yourself. Um, and not, not, not caring about yourself, but not putting others before you. You know, he speaks about a woman who receives a call to say that her daughter and her friends have been in a car accident. And then she's trying to sort things out and speaking to the hospital and speaking to other families. She finds out that her daughter has actually died whilst on the phone call. But then she continues to help out the other, you know, mothers and fathers of the children that were in the car accident. And then eventually the day of the funeral, um, she's a Relief Society president, this mother, the same mother. And this woman comes really unhappy because her family are ill and she hasn't organised for people to organise a meal for them. So the morning of her daughter's funeral... She mm. arranges a meal and takes it over and everything. So, you know, you're taught, taught, taught to not, you know, forget yourself, forget yourself, forget yourself. My advice would be put yourself first. You are no use to anyone on your mission when you're trying to do good if you have not taken care of your own mental well-being. I still see that missions serve, can serve a purpose, although I don't agree with necessarily trying to convert people to the church just because of my feelings towards the church. Um, but I see missions being beneficial to both missionaries and the lives that can be touched by missionaries because missionaries can be incredibly inspired and do incredibly inspired things and they can change people's lives just as the people I met on my mission changed mine. But you have to put yourself first. You cannot allow someone to abuse you to the point that um, you believe that their word trumps yours, that if the Lord has spoken to them and said that, you know, for example, you aren't going home, that that's true. You need to make decisions for yourself. You're still an adult. Your mission present does not dictate to you what you can and cannot do. Of course, there are rules, but when it comes to you prioritising your health, keeping yourself safe and keeping yourself alive, you absolutely put yourself first. Um, if you cannot get out of bed and you need to unwind and relax and decompress, you do that. When you get to the pearly gates, Jesus isn't going to say, oh, you know that time when you were feeling suicidal and you stayed in bed and you didn't get up and still knock doors when you were really should have? That's why you're not getting into heaven. That's just preposterous. And that isn't the character of Christ, Mr. Bednar. And so that's my advice to missionaries is you are no use to anyone uh, if you do not put yourself, um, your, if you do not prioritise your well-being and your health um, and stand up for yourself, stand up for yourself and stand up for what you believe is right. No one can ever fault you for that. So in the event, we know that um, serving missionaries do get to um, have a little podcast listen every now and again when they can. We do, we do know that some of you guys get to check in. If you are a serving missionary and you're struggling, advocate for yourself where you can. Where you can't, speak up, talk about it, let people know that you need help. Um, and in the event that you're in crisis and that you can't help, you can find help, then we would invite you, please do reach out, please do feel free to get in touch and we will make sure that you get help. Yeah, and also 
if you're a missionary in the UK, just because you're in this kind of mission bubble, doesn't mean that you can't access services like Samaritans if you feel you need it. Um, and whatever the local services that may be available in whatever country you are, the first thing is, as Jane is saying, is just reaching out, just telling someone. If you don't know what to say, all you need to say is, I just need help or I need someone to talk to or I don't know what's wrong, but I just need someone or something. And, uh, and, and access your local services because as far as I can tell, there still are great resources available via the church and via your mission president, at least not even near as adequate as they should be. So just speak to whoever you can if you trust them and you feel that they can they can help you. Do not suffer alone. You do not have to. Um, we we have questions about you know about what your life is looking like next. We are going to talk about um, your right nows and what happened. After you came back from the mission, because you were still active, um, you were still uh, intending to raise a family in the church, right? Yeah, I was all in. Absolutely. Um, so we're going to come back for a part two um, when we can set that up with Ben. We we are talking about abuse a lot this past few weeks and past few months um, because we have to. There is a story playing out just now in so many homes and so many wards and so many churches and we have watched how our church community in the United Kingdom has become extremely polarized and has struggled with recognizing what abuse looks like, has struggled with offering adequate abuse and support to people who come forward having experienced abuse um, and to feel that the church is doing all it can or who people or, or for people who feel like the church is um, should be doing a lot more. We yes. have so many things to say about this that we are inviting people to share their own stories so that we can make a broader point about recognizing abuse so that you can when you see it you can you can name that thing um we have got a lot coming up over the next few weeks and to continue to talk about Ben's story is going to be part of that we're also going to be speaking with Sam Young we are going to be speaking with an incredible survivor uh, called Katie, who's going to be, I think, is our next episode. We're going to have the next installment of Dana Kimball's story. We are going to be speaking with um, organisations and agencies who support people who are recovering from abuse, all in the help that we can have a healthier conversation here in the church. I find it really interesting that that. Ben is able to frame incredibly powerful spiritual experiences and yet talk about ecclesiastical abuse. It happened. And when we shine sunlight on cases of abuse, you know, the saying sunlight is the best disinfectant. When we start talking about it, it might be the, de the best disinfectant, but also somewhere along, along the line, there has to be accountability. And I find it incredible that Ben has, has 
tried to use his platform and his voice to talk about problems with missions, to talk about how this is this is a breeding ground for for you know mental health problems and this type of burnout. It's not new and it's still not being dealt with adequately. There is no training for companions to recognize how to keep someone mentally and physically safe. Um, we we have mission presidents who can go rogue and exercise unrighteous dominion or abuse someone um, purely by use of their power. Um, I'm going to come to Ben for some closing thoughts, um, but first of all, I'm going to come to you, Alana. Um, you also, you've you've survived various types of abuse. Um, is there anything that is that you'd like to share just as we as we close out? I'm sorry, I know you hate I know, it when I do this. You're getting put in the spot. Um, well. Not regarding abuse, I apologise for my so much movement tonight. Like I, I'm having some back issues just now, so hence the standing, the sitting, the movement constantly because I know it can be a bit distracting at times. Um, I mean, I, I guess my going along with what Ben said, you know, obviously my abuse wasn't necessarily within the walls of the church abuse, but you know, it was still abuse. Um, is like Ben says, you know, just use the resources available to you. Um, and like you say, I, I mean, I, I really feel I'm just going to reiterate a lot what you said, you know, like definitely advocate for yourself and, and just realise, I guess something that I learned, and I know it's different for everyone, I'm not speaking, saying this is how it should be, because it's different, because I... I waited for a long time. I just, I think if I could give anyone any advice, it's, it's sometimes, and, and I do believe there is a, a timing to an extent, but I went through a life of saying, it's not the right time for me to deal with it. It's not the right time for me to deal with it. It's not the right time for me to deal with it. But I got to the point that I realised that the time was never going to be right. And this is just from my personal experience. I'm not saying this is right from everyone. It got to the point that I realised the time will never be right for me to deal with us and I think it was just that fear and I think that's what happens with all of us it's that fear of digging up all those old emotions all that pain but for me the only way I've been able to move forward in my life is from dealing with that I do also understand that there are people that can move forward in life without necessarily dealing with it um I was not one of those people um but I just think especially from the church point of view um it pains me to think that that within the walls of the church, when you grow up within the church, that this, you believe, is supposed to be a safe place, a safe haven, where you find Christ. <coughs> now, I'm not saying that Christ isn't there, but I've now realised in my adult years that it's not a safe space. Sorry, here we go. <coughs> um, it's very, very much the opposite, in my opinion which is the reason why I walked for my daughter, because it's not a safe space for my daughter to be in. So I think <clears throat> if your journey is to continue within the walls of the church, absolutely support that if that's what you need in your life. But be the change. Advocate for those who don't have a voice, for our children, for, for our missionaries who 
are out there, you know, suffering. I, it's all I'm hearing and reading about lately is missionaries who are on their mission and having faith crises and struggling. And I think it's just important to make sure that we <clears throat> do all we can and not allow the system or the, what was it you said, the, the power, the ecclesiastical, mm -hmm. whatever, the authority. authority. <clears throat> To get in the way, I apologise, usual. Um, just even, I guess that what I'm trying to say is, is, is don't allow them to, to shut you down. It's something that I did for a long, long time. I was I allowed myself to be silenced. If I still was within the walls of the church right now, I think things would look very different because I think I would be advocating more. Um, I'm still trying to do certain things <clears throat> as an outsider. If that's probably what they'll call me. Um, but yeah, if you need to be within the world, yeah, and you can do so much even out with the church, it's just try and be that voice, be that change, because someone has to do it. Um, you know, I'm I'm aware of what the consequences could be of me trying to change things, trying to speak up, and I'm I'm ready to accept that if that's what it takes. Um, because I need the church to be a safe space for people, even if I don't believe anymore. Um it's about protecting people from the system of abuse that happens within the walls of the church, whether they like to believe it does or it doesn't, but it does, it absolutely does. So, yeah, I think that's probably somewhat what, what's in my mind. <clears throat> um, ben, um, Apologies for this. I'd like you to share some closing thoughts and maybe <clears throat> let, let our audience know what you'll be speaking about next time. What, what kind of things are we going to cover? Yeah, so next next time um, I'll be speaking about uh, why I have chosen to leave the church, why I've resigned my membership from the church, why it's the best decision I could have made for myself. Um, you know, I saw a question up there that was food for thought for me from Aggie who said, do you still believe in the teachings of the church? Absolutely not. Um, I believe in the teachings of Christ um, and I believe they are not um, appropriately taught in the church um and so yes i have left the church and my um my experience of uh self-discovery as well as researching and discovering um the history of the church as accurately as i'm able to as well as my learning about systemic abuse within the church um I, I mean sexual abuse, I mean racial abuse, ecclesiastical abuse, um, and specifically the efforts of the church to uh, silence uh, survivors and to uh, expose survivors and to pay off families, um, you know, has, has facilitated in me this kind of unexpected reformation of my faith. And so I describe myself as a uh, Free-thinking Christian. Um, no one dictates how I practice my faith to me, and no one um, uh, puts God in a box for me anymore. Mm -hmm. um, I I worship God uh, as as I uh, understand the teachings of Christ and as they apply to me on a day-to-day -day basis. And it's mainly through music at the minute, um, and through my experiences and relationships with others that I, I worship and see and feel and give thanks to God. Uh, and uh, I am very, very glad to no longer be a member of the church. Um, and it has 
been an incredibly liberating experience. But in terms of what we've spoken about today, just very, very briefly, um, I personally do not feel a sense of responsibility to try and fix or even assist people in the church. Um, what I mean by that is um, I don't actively seek to help them in the same way that Jane and my aunt Alana clearly do. Um, but uh, I was happy to do this podcast because people in the church don't want to speak about this stuff <laughs> and people do not want to highlight this stuff because they're fearful that it makes them unworthy and that it makes them less spiritual and that it makes them disrespectful of priesthood leaders. I couldn't give a crap about those things anymore because I'm not a member of the church. Um, and But I'm very, very acutely aware that there are people that could be listening. And, you know, even Jane, you're saying there could be missionaries listening that are experiencing these uh, exact things. And so if that is happening to you, if you can find the strength within you, take ownership of your own life, take ownership of your own choices, and remember that there is no dictator in your spiritual journey and in your spiritual faith. Um, you tell your mission president what you need and you work with him and come to an agreement. And if he is not going to work with you and he is not supporting you, you find someone else that is going to advocate for you and is going to fight your corner. Um, and so um, that that is what I would say. You aren't alone. People have been through it. People mm -hmm. don't want to talk about it, but it's happening. And members of the church can deny it as much as they like. They can give it as many different slants as they like. They can um, sugarcoat it as much as they like, but uh, systemic abuse is rife in the Mormon, the, what is it, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. It is rife, and we will only be able to heal from it when we start talking about it. Uh, and that's why um, I, I wanted to do this, is just to, to help anyone that may be in that situation. So I'm not necessarily saying my inbox is open. I don't think it is. So I would rather you didn't because um, I'm sure there are loads of other people that can help you. I wouldn't ignore you. But um, but what I'm saying is uh, I've done this podcast so that you know it's okay to suffer. Um, it's okay to, to be in that place, but it's not okay to stay there because uh, there can be help and there can be a hand that can reach out and rescue you. So as for help, Find someone that will advocate for you and do not let anyone tell you whether or not you're allowed to go home, whether or not you're allowed to call home, whether or not you're allowed to visit home. <laughs> uh, you do what you need to do to take care of yourself. You are more important than uh, someone else's claim to spiritual intelligence and, their, uh, and therefore their decisions for you on behalf of you based on that. Look at those healthy boundaries being set. That was so impressive. I love Sorry, it. You just made me remember there when you're talking about limiting the calls home. Obviously, I understand now missionaries are getting to call home on a more regular basis. But again, it just goes back to the things that, again, you know, they create these obstacles themselves. Because I look back to, to when I was on my mission, after mission president said, OK, it's time to stop calling home, <laughs> I didn't. Because I'd got so used to it. So I was buying those little, you know, calling cards that you can buy where you type a code in and it doesn't show up. 
because you're using the calling card. And I still continued to call home for a long time. So I ended up then being deceitful, <laughs> you know. And so obviously now I think they're, they're making little changes that are helpful, but there's so much further that they need to go in respect to missions and their abusive practices. And as you say, then the unhealthiness, because... I wish they did have that on my mission when I, I hate that on my mission. I hate that. <laughs> Sorry for saying that. I hate it. But do you know what I mean? It's, it's like things like that that are so needed to help with mental health and things because that was one of the most horrific experiences in my life as much as I enjoyed with my mission. I've done it again. The mission um, was, was being, I felt like I was ripped away from my family. I'd never been away from my family. I was allowed no contact apart from through email. And I was only allowed to call home on Mother's Day and Christmas. And think, you know, it's it's crazy. Anyway, we'll be here all night if I start talking. So let's No, listen, people start talking. If if your your mission experience was problematic, if you experienced mental health issues, if you experienced ecclesiastical abuse on your mission or in your ward or in wherever the hell you find it, by your home teachers, by your husband. But your Relief Society president, but you're the person that's been assigned to you to look at, if someone is abusing their power over you, then you speak up. Because do you know what? It is rife in the church. The interesting thing is that absolutely abuse happens in all areas of our society. We know this. But we are speaking about abuse that plays out in uniquely Mormon ways. And, you know, as, as Ben pointed out, the, the, your choice to serve a Mormon mission is sending you into a set of circumstances where it is a breeding ground for these types of things to happen. Missions, I suppose it's something to, to maybe just think about for next time because we're going to wrap up here. But I mean... Is there a healthy way that a Mormon mission could look? Even when Ben's is expressed through music, even when Ben's is able to use his own talents, just the sheer volume of work, the pressure from home, the illness, the negotiating the different personalities, the isolation, all of those things create this perfect storm of of illness of of mental unwellness of physical unwellness and then when you're not being listened to then when you find people become roadblocks to you being able to recover and do it by throwing Jesus under the bus because God has revealed it to them how dare you how dare you do that um we normally um wait until we're kind of wrapping up someone's experience of their journey before we would before we would properly bless it but um you know because you know Ben you've just you've been so open and so vulnerable and modeled really healthy recovery strategies and demonstrated how you can set set healthy boundaries um I'm just so appreciative of that that as um, people who have shared your Mormon background, as someone who's who's shared your your family story, and as as people who just love you and love your family, on behalf of Alan and I, we want to bless 
every moment of your journey. We want to bless you as a father. We want to bless you as a husband. We want to bless you as you and your own right who exists to, you know, just just live a happy life and, and to be a happy, whole, complete person without needing to have something else to, to get you, to make you worthy. We bless your voice talents. We bless your mental health. We bless you to feel loved and to be able to, to know that you have so much love and support around you, that we are part of your journey and that we are part of your story. And when you need held up, we are there and commit to be there to do that. We bless you to find Christ in your life in whichever way you do that. Um, we love you so much, Ben. Okay, we're going to wrap up and we'll just, you know what, we'll just let you all know when we'll be back again. It will be next Wednesday, we can tell you that. Um, and yeah, we should be back with Dana next week and uh, we'll keep you all posted. But we will have a part two with Ben because he's pinky promised us, right? Um, y'all be good. You'll have a great night and we'll see you during the next episode. Bye, everyone. Bye-bye.